Hi, this is Dominic Pace from the new Star Wars series, The Mandalorian, and you're listening to the Jedi Temple Archives podcast. Hey, this is Vanessa Marshall. I play Harrison Dula on Star Wars Rebels, and you're listening to the Jedi Temple Archives podcast. May the Force be with you always. Welcome to episode 39 of the Jedi Temple Archives podcast. There is more knowledge here than anywhere else in the galaxy. Only members of the Jedi Council are allowed access. Guarding the holocrons is one of the most important duties a Jedi can be given. Do you think you're up to the task? to another episode of the Jedi Temple Archives podcast. I'm your host, Rob, and I am joined this week by my co-host and co-pilot, Tom, uh, from the Hyperion Adventures podcast. Tom, welcome back, and I'm guessing perhaps you're happy to be on the Jedi Temple Archives podcast? I am. Wow, two weeks in a row I'm here to join you. That's amazing. It's so good to be back on the Jedi Temple Archives podcast. Apparently, just like Finn, I'm Force-sensitive. I totally knew you were going to say that. <laughs> if you only could have told Ray that, just like he was trying. Exactly, exactly. Well, you know, we, we you know, it didn't get out in the film, but uh, fortunately, J.J. Abrams wasn't uh, hiding that behind his vest too much. That came out pretty quickly that that was the uh, the information that Finn was so adamantly trying to uh, to tell Ray that entire film, and uh, it was not really super surprising for me. I was assuming, kind of the way The Force Awakens went, that at least one of the two, either Finn or Poe, would show up as uh, being Force sensitive and one of the later films, but uh, interesting that they they chose Finn. Apparently he has uh, a future ahead of him as kind of a Force-sensitive uh, janitor. <laughs> yes, he can wield that mop like nobody's business. Uh, <laughs> uh, I just thought it was very, I, I really felt from right from uh, The Force Awakens that he had something going on there. You know, whether he was, you know, to be a, a, a possible full-on Jedi, th that kind of skill, or just, you know, have a little bit of brush with the Force, which, you know, there seem to be different levels of how Force-sensitive you can be. But I just seemed to me every moment, every motion he had, every time, he, even when he was able to wield a lightsaber pretty easily early on, I, I just kind of felt like he was Force-sensitive. Yeah, I completely agree. I, uh, I, I thought... Poe had a chance as well, just because of his acumen uh, in the cockpit and most of the exceptional pilots that we saw within, you know, the original trilogy or especially like the the prequel and Clone Wars era, uh, you know, that that enhanced piloting skill was one of the ways that the force would manifest itself. So I thought there was a chance he may be, but uh, I didn't figure they were going to go with all of them being force sensitive. But uh to the point that we're, I guess, talking about right now, this week's topic is going to be The Rise of Skywalker. We kind of feel like it's been out in the theaters enough now where we can do a full spoiler uh, included review of Rise of Skywalker and kind of get some of our thoughts out there. Uh, I know Tom and I have both seen it at least two times. Uh, and are in agreement that watching it that second time is definitely useful. Uh, I know I enjoyed it a lot more the second time. Tom, how about you? 
Yeah, I, and I loved it the first time. Uh, I went in there with uh, no, uh, I, I, I had no serious expectations. I didn't want to go in there uh, thinking that this is going to be this serious, you know, award-winning, critically acclaimed movie. Just kind of going back to uh, looking at it as I did as uh, a, a child, as you know, a young a young man growing up watching, growing up and watching Star Wars, knowing that this was the end of the Skywalker saga. Uh, so I went in there and enjoyed the heck out of it, just as a fun Star Wars ride to begin with. And then I got to go back about a little less than a week later and watch it again, and I picked out more detail. Uh, just had even more fun with it, even though it's funny because the audience I went with the first day was really into it. They were cheering, uh, you know, they were hissing for the bad guys. They were, you know, really into it. And the second time it was really more of a quiet theater. Uh, still just enjoyed it as much, if not more. Yeah, I had kind of the same experience. Um, I will actually just take a quick uh, side here just to say that we're recording this episode on Tuesday, January 14th, 2020. Uh, so I remembered what year it was, thankfully. But uh, to your point, I mean, we had the same experience. That even though I would say even the first viewing, the theater was quieter than I expected it to be at the end. But I think it was a lot of people just kind of processing what they'd seen because one thing about this particular film is that while it was very much a fun romp, uh, there was a lot to digest and a lot of things happening very quickly, which I think is one of the reasons why it stands up so well to a second viewing. You kind of uh, are able to process things, I guess, a little bit better uh, having seen them before and, and kind of pick up additional detail for that very reason. Yeah, I, I always find that way with movies that I love anyway. The first time I go to many movies, I, I, I just take the whole thing in and enjoy it for what it is. And then when I go in for a second, third, or who knows, with, with this film, it could be, it'll be numerous viewings by the end of it. Uh, then I pick out more of the details around. And I, yeah, I agree with you, Rob. That's believe that's why I enjoyed it even more the second time around. Yeah. I And it's interestingly enough, you say that you didn't kind of go in with any expectations and I didn't really either. Although I will say that kind of one of the things that's been happening to me really ever since the prequel trilogy um, and primarily since the second film, the prequel trilogy is that uh, I was kind of going in nervous to kind of see how things were going to turn out. Um, and, you know, we know we had some issues that we talked about it in the uh, in the Star Wars Remembered series that you guys had done on Hyperion. Uh, and I was lucky enough to join you. So I would definitely recommend for anyone who wants to go out and kind of relive information about any of the pre you know, the previous films. We did it all the way uh, all the way up through The Last Jedi, kind of leading up to the Rise of Skywalker, including uh, Rogue One and Solo. Uh, but one of the things that we had discussed about those prequel films is it was kind of the first time we'd been exposed to a Star Wars film that maybe wasn't what we expected or um, didn't blow us out of the water in the same way that some of the original trilogy films had. And so it was always kind of, you know, what am I going to get here when I compare this to the other films that I love so much? Um, and fortunately, you know, with this one, like you said, whether you want to sit there and, and look at this is, is it a technically perfect film or does it hit all the notes that maybe you wanted to, uh, then I can say probably a lot of people would say maybe not, but in terms of just pure viewing enjoyment, um, despite the fact that it was incredibly fast paced, I, I definitely felt like everyone in the theater was just having a good time with this particular film. 
That's what it was. It was just, you know, it's funny because it's a Christmas movie, but it could have easily been a summer movie because that's kind of what you look for in your summer type blockbuster is just kind of a good time at the theater. And that's what I got out of this Star Wars film. It was a good time at the theater. And that's what I remember growing up as, you know, you know, from when I was eight, seeing uh, the original Star Wars the first time, later titled The New Hope and The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi is just going and having a great time at the theater. And I, that's truly what I got out of The Rise of Skywalker. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. And I think that it did definitely set a, a great tone for people to go into that theater and just really enjoy themselves. Um, it certainly had a lot of story to tell. And, and I would say that if there's anything that, I thought might be a negative about the film, especially after watching it the first time, was just that it was so much happening so quickly uh, that at times it, the pace seemed a little frenetic. And um, But again, when you go back and see it a second time and you kind of have a better idea of, of what's happening and, and it slows down, I feel like, a little bit for you uh, and you can get that enjoyment out of it that maybe uh, just kind of whips by you on the first viewing. Yeah, it is. They packed a lot into a two and a half hour film that probably could have been longer. Uh, you know, and we we discussed this, you know, we kind of chatted back and forth uh, after seeing the movie. And, you know, would it have been better if they had extended it out to either, you know, another 30 minutes or so of this film or done the whole thing they did with Harry Potter and Hunger Games and, you know, a couple other films where they split it up into two different parts. And, it, you know, I'm always one that's, has problems with editing in films and that's, you know, the editing is one that can turn a, you know, a bad film, proper editing can turn a bad film into a decent film, can turn a decent film into a great film. And it, so I mean, you know, yes, I would, I like to have maybe seen some of these scenes been able to breathe a little more possibly so, but then, you know, would I have enjoyed it as much? It's hard to say unless we actually do get some sort of director's cut at some point to find out whether that would have worked or not. I would love that. I mean, I definitely think that with what's happened with the Avengers films, specifically Infinity War really being the first one that stood out to me was that that film proved that you can do a three-hour movie that is just perfectly edited. Um, it's covering a lot of stories for a lot of different characters and a lot of content, but it just seemed to flow really well together. And uh, it just had a, a really wonderful pacing, I thought. And so I do think it's possible to have a longer film uh, that that people don't feel like is an editing nightmare uh, where they could have trimmed stuff out of it and it could have been a shorter, uh, shorter movie. Um, but with this one, I did feel like some extra time, kind of like you said, to, to let some of the scenes breathe might have been beneficial. And I do hope that at some point they do uh, maybe more of a director's cut of it with some of those additional scenes put in just to see how that would have played out. But uh, certainly even at two hours and a little over 20 minutes, there was plenty of story to tell. I did think it was interesting. So we'll kind of get right into the details of it. And uh, when it starts off with the opening crawl and, you know, they they have that exclamation of, you know, the dead speak, which is actually the only only the second time, I believe, in Star Wars where the opening crawl has uh, started with a sentence uh, that was an exclamation. Uh, mm -hmm. The other being Revenge of the Sith, I believe, uh, where it started off with war. Right. 
Right, um, that's right. I, I didn't really think about that to that point, but that's a, that's an interesting uh, fact to bring up. Yeah. Yeah. Not my observation. I actually had heard that um, in in analysis of of this particular film, but I thought it was interesting that uh, this whole subtitle or this whole sub story about the fact that uh, the galaxy has heard a broadcast from Emperor Palpatine and he appears to have returned from the grave, and uh, that actually was content that had been put out ahead of the release of the film. Uh, within the Fortnite video game. Uh, so they had a special okay. event uh, within Fortnite where uh, that you could hear that broadcast within the game, uh, which I thought was kind of an interesting twist, not really something I'd seen done in a film before. Yeah, interesting to, to tie in uh, this video, fran video game franchise into this and make it such an event. And uh, I had heard that after the fact. I didn't know that that was happening or whatever. I didn't hear that that had happened until the film had come out, but I found it interesting, uh, an interesting way to tie in something that is very popular. And, you know, maybe it's a way to try and, you know, I, I think Star Wars is trying very hard right now to try and bring in the younger viewers again to, you know, whether it be some of the films, we, we've got the comics going out, we have Star Wars Resistance going on on Disney XD right now. And I think that they're trying to, they keep grasping at ways to bring in more younger fans. And maybe that's, you know, Fortnite is extremely popular uh, with the young fans out there. So maybe that was their way to kind of, you know, breach that hull of those, uh, of those younglings out there. Yeah. And actually uh, kind of toward the end of this podcast, once we get done with our review of Rise of Skywalker, I am going to go into uh, kind of a spoiler free review of both Savi's workshop and Mobu's uh, droid depot uh, within galaxy's edge, which I got to experience both of those on our Christmas trip. Um, so we will talk about that. And I think that's another one of those places where I think that they're doing something that is going to kind of get some of the younger uh, younger fans interested in uh, in Star Wars in general and certainly in these films. Um, and I think that they're doing a pretty effective job of it as kind of a, a preview, a spoiler preview. But within the actual film itself, um, the interesting thing about this, this particular movie was the fact that it went right from that opening crawl into kind of a montage of scenes with Kylo Ren, uh, which were breaking down his search for uh, first the Wayfinder, which was going to lead him ultimately to Exegol, the planet that uh, Emperor Palpatine was kind of hiding out on and recovering from the wounds that he had gotten within Return of the Jedi, but also uh, really leading right up to him coming face to face with Palpatine, which I was very surprised by. I, I generally know that a lot of the stuff that they put in uh, the trailers, especially the early trailers, if it is in the film, it tends to be in the first 10, maybe 20 minutes. Um, but I was not really expecting that we were going to have a reveal of Palpatine quite that quickly in the film. Yeah, I, I kind of felt the same way. I, was, I expected it to be like, is this really, is he really still alive or is this some sort of leftover beacon from some distant time or something he set up as, as a pod of Operation Cinder or whatever the case may be. Uh, but yeah, we get, we get him right off the bat and you know, there's no question, you know, we're not going to leave this up in the air. Palpatine is still around. Yeah, interestingly enough, when uh, when I went over to Chicago for ScarifCon uh, with the Scarif podcast and WSTR Public Access, 
which we had back on November 17th. And that's actually out on the Scarif Podcast YouTube channel if you want to go check that out. Um, it was a couple hours long. We had a great time. But one of the things, we were kind of having a discussion after the fact. Um, and we had Yoshi Vu, who uh, worked at Lucasfilm and, and had worked on this film. And he certainly wasn't going to be revealing anything about it. But um, it, after watching the film, it kind of gave me some context for a funny look he gave me because I was sitting there as we were having dinner and talking about the fact that um, we were talking about how Kylo had been turned to the dark side. And I said, well, you know, you saw when Palpatine got thrown down that reactor shaft by Vader at the end of Return of the Jedi, that kind of wash of energy come out. And I knew that in the past, uh, within, you know, some of the books and, um, and some of the, you know, additional stories in the Star Wars universe, that it was possible for these darksiders to kind of attach themselves to objects. Uh, I said it would be interesting if Palpatine was really speaking to Kylo through Vader's mask and using that as kind of a, a medium to turn him to the dark side. Uh, and Yoshi had just given me a really funny look, and I didn't think a thing of it at the time. Uh, but certainly after watching this film and, and having Palpatine say to Kylo Ren, you know, that he'd been every voice that he'd ever heard, and you kind of heard part of that in Snoke's voice and part of that with uh, through Vader's voice, which... Kylo clearly was hearing through the helmet. Uh, it just kind of gave you some context for the long game that Palpatine was playing here and, and which we know from the previous films that he is a master of. Palpatine played the long game. That's yeah. never happened in the past. He's always quick to make these things go through. No, that was uh, very impressive. Even the, you know, the, uh, you know, he's walking through there and there's these clones of Snoke there, uh, bits and pieces of him in within this tank. And, uh, you know, just, just showing right off the bat, look, you know, this is all me. We did this all. You're here because of me. Everything that's happening is, uh, exactly how I have foreseen it essentially, you know, if, and, uh, yeah, just, it just a great, uh, you know, show right off the beginning of like, this is where we're going from here. This is the big bad. Now, how do we get to defeat him or whatever the result will be? I did think it was kind of funny though. He has the ability to clone, but they couldn't fix the, you know, the cloning template enough to fix those huge deformities that you saw on Snoke. Um, and it would be interesting to kind of know, you know, we, we know that there's no backstory for Snoke beyond what we now know as the fact that he was a clone that was created by Palpatine. Uh, but it would be interesting to know if there was any particular significance to why he was selected uh, to be the clone that, that Palpatine kind of put out there as his, um, as his creature uh, that he was acting through uh, from afar. Yeah, I definitely think that that's a story that will be told at some point or should be told at some point, uh, you know, even if it's just alluded to within a different storyline. Um, I, I think that that's something that would come out and would be fascinating to find out how this uh character was selected out of you know the whole um you know unknown regions or whatever the case may be right um so from the kylo ren scene you know he he barely he clearly is very upset about the fact that there is a a uh, force out there in the galaxy that is uh, challenging his authority as the supreme leader which is why he tracks down palpatine and uh and that really sets him once again on the path to go out and eliminate ray uh, and Palpatine is, you know, kind of implying that he is going to or, or directly stating that he is going to uh, have Kylo Ren be the one who is ruling kind of as the supreme Sith, um, which, again, you'd have to you would have to assume that this is once again just him playing uh, Kylo for a pawn. 
Um, it seems to be that part of what Palpatine's plan was was to kind of punish the people that he held responsible for him being uh, thrown down as a power within the galaxy, and, and you would have to say especially the Skywalker family. Uh, so what better way than to turn Kylo Ren and kind of play him as a pawn uh, so that eventually uh, Rey could rise in his place? Yeah, it's all a means to the end, uh, you know, was as we go through this and yeah, okay, I found somebody who I can mold and shaped very similarly to how I did with Anakin to, to turn him into Darth Vader and, and be my apprentice and, and essentially help me, you know, gain more power or re retain my power in this point. Now that's what he's trying to do with Kylo, trying to help bring Ray in to get to this end point, promising all these things to Kylo when, when, we all know at the end that it, it was going to be Ray, you know, to finish it off. Uh, interesting that there were things that about the two of them that he did not know that do come into play later in the film that I'm sure you'll discuss. No, probably not. I think we'll skip that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so from there we cut to uh, this uh, kind of crazy ice asteroid that has a base on it. Uh, and you've got uh, Poe and Finn. Uh, I have to give credit to Charles Westcott from uh, Conversations. I just about called them Foe and Pin, uh, primarily because I listened to their Rise of Skywalker review today, and Charles uh, apparently has renamed those two. So <laughs> now that's stuck in my head. So thank you, Charles, for that. But uh, Poe and Finn were kind of along with Chewie and, uh, and Claude, who we had seen a little bit of in some of the trailers and who I was sure was actually Palpatine Reborn. Uh, but that did not turn out to be the case. Claude, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, he was such a such a, a lovely character, kind of just this giant blob slash snail without a shell, I guess. Who was apparently a really excellent engineer, just so you know. Amazing. I could have probably used him on a Millennium Falcon Smuggler's Run a couple of times. Uh, I always seem sure. to get the, the engineers that are kind of sleeping in the back. But anyway, uh, they're going to this base to uh, retrieve some information uh, that basically verifies that the broadcast that everyone has heard is in fact Palpatine. So this is kind of setting up the fact that it has now been verified uh, for the resistance that not only do they have the first order out there to deal with in the galaxy, but they have Palpatine, uh, the, the original big bad of star Wars that they are going to have to face off against as well. So, uh, certainly with the situation that they were left with at the end of, uh, the last Jedi, where they were down to enough people to, you know, fit comfortably within the, the millennium Falcon, um, you know, that's, that's two large forces and very powerful forces to have, uh, kind of, arrayed against you uh, at the beginning of this film. Yeah, the odds seemed insurmountable at that point to try and uh, battle, you know, of course, the First Order, which was already dominating the galaxy, and then this uh, other born empire, reborn empire, is uh, it, how do you match up with that? But that doesn't mean we're we're the resistance. We're not going to keep fight or uh, not going to stop fighting. Exactly. Uh, and then they kind of intercut that scene uh, at, at the time that uh, they get the transmission from their contact. Uh, they are then attacked by a group of uh, first order Tie fighters and basically have to make an escape. Where there's some hyperspace skipping that is done by uh, by Poe, uh, which we'll kind of get to in a minute as it it kind of trashes the Falcon. Uh, but at the same time, you've got uh, some scenes in her 
intercut with Ray on the planet of Ejen Kloss, uh, which is where the, that resistance base is located. And the interesting thing about that particular planet was that that was something that had been discovered by uh, Alderanian scouts prior to the Galactic Civil War. So it's really the secret stronghold for the uh, Alderanian royal family, including uh, Leia, which is how she knew about that. Uh, and also, supposedly, this is the planet where when we later in the film kind of get the throwback to the training of, uh, of Leia by Luke, that is, again, the planet that that training was taking place on. So it wasn't Endor or any of these other planets that people were kind of supposing. This was uh, really kind of a, a hidden planet that was really only known to um, the royals of, of Alderaan. Kind of wondered about that when we were watching the trailer. It seems so obvious that that uh, planet that we thought Ray would be training in might be Endor with the fact that we see, you know, the the hull of the Death Star, you know, essentially out there. And we just kind of, okay, well, it looks like a forest planet and there's the Death Star there, so this must be Endor. And it just kind of makes sense. And uh, one of the things I love about Star Wars is we're always discovering these new worlds and finding out new facts about uh, some of these new places throughout the galaxy. And it, it's great. I, that was the first, I didn't know that it was an, uh, an Alderanian stronghold. And that's really good. It's the Count, Camp David of Alderaan, essentially. Exactly. I think that's a great, a great description of it for sure. Um, you know, it is funny because one of the knocks you get in the Star Wars universe is that apparently every planet can only have really one dominant form of, of environment. So it's either all sand or it's all water or it's all, um, you know, in this case, forest. But uh, I just yeah, I think that's probably an oversimplification. We're only getting to see very small portions of these planets. Um, but certainly for the the purposes of the scene, I mean, prior to going in, you had no reason to expect it wasn't a planet that we already knew about. Right. I mean, we again, we have no frame of reference to it except for we, we put two and two together. There's the Death Star. There's a forest planet. That must be Endor. You know, and we even heard some things going in that we may see some of the Ewoks appear, you know. And so, OK, well, that, that ties into it as well. So, again, interesting to have a, a new world to explore. I will say kind of as an aside, and I know, uh, Tom, you and Michelle were down at Walt Disney World kind of celebrating uh, the Christmas holiday season there before Christmas. Uh, and you were originally set up to go see the candlelight processional with Warwick Davis, and he ended up having to cancel his appearance. So, I mean, we had talked back then, and I thought that it was probably pretty likely that he had a bigger role than we were expecting within the film. Uh, and as it turns out, you know, he he really didn't. Uh, it may have just been for promotional purposes. But uh, I was a little bit surprised, given that he had canceled that appearance, that, that there wasn't a bigger uh, appearance by him within the film. Yeah, that was my instant impression or what I assumed would happen when he canceled uh, just a couple of weeks before we went on the trip. I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, apparently now they know that he'll they'll be needing him more to speak more to uh, on the press junket or whatever the case may be. Uh, and maybe he did, I, especially they may have used him more in some of the foreign markets uh, for part of this, uh, for all we know. Uh, but obviously it wasn't based on how much of a role he had within this film. While, while he does show up, it is a very quick. Yeah, uh, certainly the case. Um, so within the, within the film, uh, you know, Ray is sitting here tra training on this planet of Agenclaus, uh, kind of while the resistance is gathering their forces. And uh, we see her really exhibiting some pretty advanced force abilities. I mean, she is levitating herself, which we had never really seen 
you know, we've seen Jedi levitate objects, but to actually levitate herself is not uh, something that we had seen. Probably the closest to it was Luke using the force to kind of stabilize himself as he was doing his one handed handstand uh, mm-hmm. during his training on Dagobah. And then, you know, also levitating the rock. So she clearly, uh, you know, is, is becoming more and more powerful and kind of finding her center as a Jedi. But she's also trying to kind of commune with, uh, with the Jedi that have come before her at this point and uh, doing so unsuccessfully, uh, which leads to some frustration on her part. Yeah, um, and I imagine now she's being trained by by Leia, by uh, Leia Organa. Uh, and at this point, which, you know, another interesting thing is obviously, and we see this a little bit at the film and hear a little bit about it, that, uh, yes, Leia did receive Jedi training. And you got to believe that that is something that Leia did as well, that she communed with some of the other Jedi through the Force or whatever. And so that's why I would imagine Ray is trying to reach out and contact them, but she's just failing to this point. And yes, there was some frustration there for sure. Yeah. And to your point about the, you know, kind of the flashback or the the backstory we get on the training of Leia by Luke on this planet, uh, the, the CGI work that was done uh, to kind of recreate uh, Leia's face or t- the rotoscoping that was done to recreate her face on that character. The actual actress that played her for the purposes of those scenes uh, was her daughter, Billy Lord. So that was kind of a, a kind of a cool way for her to honor her mother within the film. And I don't think there's a lot of people out there that know that it was actually her daughter uh, that was playing the young Leia in this film. Yeah, I didn't know. I just assumed uh, it was CG work just like they did in uh, Rogue One, you know, that was my assumption right off the bat, just like they actually did with Luke. Uh, right. But yeah, that was great that uh, Billy Lord was able to kind of just take that role for a little piece of it. And of course, she also appears at other times in the film, as she has done throughout the sequel trilogy. Right. But uh, interestingly enough, as Ray is finishing up her training, uh, she senses that uh, she hears actually the Falcon coming back and uh, makes her way back to the resistance base and uh, kind of as a byproduct, uh, we've got BB-8 who takes some damage. Uh, but as she gets back to the resistance base, uh, you've got Finn and Poe uh, and Chewie coming back from their mission. And the the Falcon is a result of the hyperspace skipping that they had done where they're just kind of flashing in and out of hyperspace trying to evade the ties. Uh, it is just this burning, smoking hulk. Uh, and Ray is going at Poe for, you know, what have you done to my ship? And he's coming right back at her with, what have you done to my droid? So it was kind of one of the first uh, good comedic moments within this particular film. Uh, and there are several others. I, I do have to give J.J. Abrams some credit. Uh, there are a number of really funny points in this particular film, despite all the kind of heavy topics. Uh, but this was just a, another great example of the Falcon kind of always being something that's having to be patched back together for whatever its next mission is. Really interesting chemistry between uh, Ray, Daisy Ridley, and uh, Oscar Isaac as uh, Poe Dameron throughout this film, and some really funny moments between the two of them. It, it would really remind I me, mean, without the actual love interest being there, being kind of a, a Han and Leia interaction between the two of them, you know, kind of that, you know, the little, the, you know, they all kind of, they both want kind of control, uh, you know, the situation, but, you know, they, they, you know, you can tell that they really respect one another, but at the same time, there is this uh, abrasiveness between the two of them. It's like, well, you should do things my way. No, you should do things my way. But it, it really is, are some of the more interesting and 
funnier, as you said, Rob, moments of the film. Yeah, they actually do a pretty good job of kind of changing the dynamic around between some of the characters because while, you know, Ray and Poe were in the same room in Force Awakens as they were kind of patching together the remains of, of the map after they had gotten back from Starkiller Base, you know, they were together in the same room, didn't really have any lines together. Uh, they met up kind of formally at the end of Last Jedi. Uh, within this film, there's a lot more interaction between them. And the interesting thing is that Poe kind of calls Ray out here about, you know, you're here on this planet, you're training, but we need you out there. You know, there's there's a battle going on and you're one of our biggest weapons and, and here you are kind of uh, hiding along with the resistance here. And Poe sides with him, uh, and we really don't see Poe kind of contradicting or questioning Ray's actions in any of the prior films. So that dynamic between the characters is constantly changing within this film. Yeah, interesting. I think you meant to say Finn there, but uh, yeah. Oh, sorry, uh, I said Poe, yep. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. I, Charles, I'll take uh, Charles has twisted your mind a little bit. Yeah, exactly. That, you know, at least it's not Finn and Finn and, or Finn and Poe. Poe. Yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, yeah, I, I, it, the dynamics have definitely changed. Yeah, we, you know, uh, and you, you didn't really think about it. It was really funny up, and, and we went through our Star Wars Remembered series, and you got to those films, and we get to Last Jedi, and, you know, uh, Ray and Poe introduced them, themselves to each other for the first time at the end of the film, and you're like, oh, yeah, these two have never spoken. They've never really connected in, in, at any point. But now they've been around each other for you know a certain amount of time in between these between the last jedi and the rise of skywalker uh poe has been out there seeing what's going trying to rustle up support trying to find as many facts as possible meanwhile uh ray is there training you know doing what she really needs to do to become the best jedi as the you know last jedi uh that she can be and, you know, it, it's really interesting to see the dynamic between the two of them. And you can understand actually both sides of the argument. Yeah. And certainly, you know, they're both kind of alpha characters within this film. You've got um, Poe is really trying to take on the mantle that Leia had had uh, started laying out for him within The Last Jedi uh, and take on responsibility for the resistance and kind of start trying to fill her shoes. And at the same time, you've got Rey, who has always been a loner. She is pretty much used to only answering to herself. And, uh, you know, this is a situation where now the resistance needs her not as more really than a figurehead. I mean, they need her to take some action and, and to be a leader for them in a different way. Uh, and she, you know, is is not really comfortable uh, with that role, although I will give her credit. I mean, she definitely uh, realizes that they're making a valid argument and uh, and steps up. And it's really what starts the main storyline of this particular film for for the trio. Uh, and again, I mean, we've talked about this in the in the past that within the sequel trilogy, this has not been a group that you kind of see them sharing adventures together it's it's smaller subsets of them uh whereas in the original trilogy there was much more time where you know the big three kind of were out uh, you know facing down the empire together so a little bit of a different dynamic within the sequel trilogy but this film really delivers on on the three of them kind of acting together uh to resolve the overall storyline and that's one of the things that you know when i talked about early on in the show about how it reminded me of being 
a kid watching Star Wars growing up. And that's what this was. It was the group, for the most part, together going through this wild space adventure, which is exactly what I grew up watching. And that's why, you know, despite, you know, what you think about it critically, are there some holes in the story? Yes, of course. You know, is it too jammed packed within this two and a half hour thing? Possibly. But I just had a fun ride watching my favorite characters go through this space adventure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And this is, like I said, this is really what starts the, the main story arc in this film of the three of them deciding that they have got to track down uh, Palpatine and they have to put an end to him essentially to end his threat uh, on the universe. And that really starts with uh, Ray kind of through her study of the Jedi texts and uh, the revelation that they need to find this wayfinder. She identifies that from the Jedi texts uh, and they, uh, they come to understand that, you know, Luke had been previously looking for this and kind of the trail had gone cold on this planet of Pisana, uh, which is the one that we see from the trailers, the desert planet that again, a lot of people were thinking might be Jakku, might be Tatooine. Uh, but this is really kind of where their story begins to unfold within this film. Yeah, the the adventure begins as all together as they're trying to find something to, uh, you know, take the next step to try and put an end to the the emperor and whatever they can do. And uh, yeah, it was just an interesting, fun ride through this first world that we're going to visit with them all together. And, you know, they're having this festival that happens every 42 years. How convenient that date was. (laughs) No symbology there, is there? (laughs) (laughs) And it was just, it was just a good time watching them go through there, sneak around, try and blend in. And it was, it was really an interesting situation. Well, and certainly there's not going to be a party anywhere in the galaxy that uh that is not going to attract the likes of billy d williams and his role as lando calrissian uh you know he he, it makes well. There's a couple different things about about their visit to pasana that are interesting at first they use it to establish the fact that ray is really a person who doesn't have uh she doesn't really understand where she's from right she has the interaction with the akiaki that asks her what her name is and she gives the name ray and uh then kind of questions her about what her full name is and she can't answer that uh and and this sequel really has been about the identity of all three of the the primary characters them kind of uh becoming who they're meant to be maybe more than than who they were born as uh, and so that is definitely one of the things that they're trying to lay out with this visit to Basana. Yeah. And, you know, again, with Ray, you know, trying to find her place in the universe where she belongs and everything. And uh, she was still trying, you know, it's so funny because we've gone through this and you kind of feel like she's getting to know more. She's understanding more uh, within the force. Obviously she's been trained a little bit by Luke and now she's being trained even more uh, by Leia and she's developed, but that still doesn't, she still doesn't have a complete sense of belonging uh, so it is interesting to see how that all develops throughout this. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because kind of the, the study of human nature and human rea- uh, you know, reactions or interactions is always been a big part of what drove George Lucas. I mean, he was always kind of a student of people and, and relationships and those types of things. And that was really what the basis of his stories was. 
And it's appropriate that for the sequel trilogy, that's really what they got back to. I mean, it was certainly present in the prequels as well, but uh, you know, the, the stories about people and the situations they're facing and how they respond to them and kind of that nature versus nurture, right? Are you who you were born to be? Or are you who you choose to be based on the people that, um, that you kind of, or that, that imprint themselves on you is a huge part of the story. Uh, so, Getting back to to the the Billy D. Williams appearance in this particular scene, uh, again a great character. We kind of been waiting for him uh, throughout the first two films, and he finally shows up. And I gotta say, uh, he has that exact same swagger that he had in Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. Uh, you know, he's he's gained a couple of years, but he has not lost one ounce of what made him uh, Lando Calrissian that we know and love. Yeah, you know, it's so funny because when it was announced that he was going to be coming back and everything, I'm like, that's great. Yeah, I love that Lando's back, and that's exciting. And we saw him at Star Wars Celebration on the stage, and, you know, Lando never left me, baby, and all that. And that was fantastic and everything. But when he actually appeared, and I knew it as soon as I saw him, I'm like, that's Lando. Yeah. And as soon as he draws back the face mask, I, I well, that may have been the first time I cried in a film, <laughs> to be honest with you, because I was so excited. I didn't know that I would be so excited to see Lando uh, back in the Star Wars universe, but I was so excited to see him. Well, if it wasn't then, it had to be when Chewbacca reacted to seeing oh, Lando yeah. again, because, you know, Junus uh, Suatamo was, was not present for the original trilogy, uh, and he didn't have that, you know, personal relationship with Billy D. Williams that certainly Peter Mayhew would have had, but you never would have known that seeing his performance in the film. I mean, the, just the unbridled joy that you see out of Chewbacca as he jumps forward and gives him a big Wookiee hug uh, was definitely one of the emotional moments of the film. Junus Sotamo is a gift. It's amazing that he's been able to just take on Chewbacca, this beloved character who was played by another wonderful person for so many years, decades, and still be able to carry across the same beloved nature of this behemoth who is just as lovable as can be. And it's it, it the acting. And there's another scene I'm sure will come up again. That oh, yeah. is another one that is that really ripped my heart, when, <laughs> you know, and the acting that he did when he doesn't have any lines, you can't see his face. You've talked about it many times in our Star Wars Remembered series, how the acting is that much more impressive when they are in these masks or whatever. I was, it was that and the other scene that we're going to talk about uh, are amazing. Yeah. And, and we will definitely talk about that when I know exactly what you're talking about. So, uh, so, you know, Pasana is also the place where the first order uh, comes to track them down. Uh, they end up having kind of the, the speeder chase out across the desert with the, the jet troopers that we had never seen before. Uh, and that was kind of a cool little twist. I know they had the, uh, what do they call them? The uh, tread speeders, I think they were called. Oh yeah. Is that what they are? <laughs> yeah. I think that's what, I think that's the formal name for them. So they're, you know, they're kind of like a, uh, uh, a vehicle with a tread in the front and, uh, they kind of would flip the back up to launch the jet troopers into the air, uh, which like was snowmobile for sand. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, definitely kind of an exhilarating chase there. Uh, we get to see once again, you know, never underestimate a droid as Leia says earlier in the film and, uh, BB eight comes to their aid. Uh, we also get introduced uh, a little bit later on this planet to Dio, uh, which we'll get to in due time. But, uh, this kind of was a, a little bit of uh, an Indiana Jones vibe to 
it because they were trying to track down um, the the ship of this bounty hunter that supposedly had this other um, this other tracking device uh, that they needed to find Exegol, and uh, they end up at the end of this chase, kind of getting thrown into the the sinking fields, uh, which was kind of a cool throwback to the Force Awakens. Right, Ray is uh, warning. Uh, BB-8 to stay away from the sinking fields. And we kind of didn't know what that was. But in this film, we actually get to see what that's all about. Uh, And it kind of looks for a moment there like our heroes are kind of coming to an untimely end. Yeah, I was trying to figure out how they're going to get out of this one. It's like that exactly. Well, it's Star Wars a lot does this as well. But Indiana Jones especially focused on it. How is our hero going to escape from this circumstance or whatever? And that was pretty much what happened in this one year. Like, okay, I figure, okay, Ray is going to use the force to, you know, to lift them all out. She was just, you know, lifting herself and lifting stones. Why couldn't she do that here or whatever the case might be? But obviously there was a different situation that was involved in, and actually it was necessary as the force works in mysterious ways uh, for them to go into these sinking fields. Yeah. Uh, and so ultimately they end up in some, uh, some tunnels or caverns that had been carved out underneath the sand. Uh, as we come to find out by this, uh, this sandworm, which this was kind of one of those things that, uh, for those of you who are old enough to remember the movie Dune, um, it's got a little bit of that in it, uh, with this sand serpent kind of that, uh, that they find blocking the exit to these tunnels. Uh, but this, um, this was a moment that I thought was particularly interesting because we have Ray, uh, who employs the force here to actually heal a wound on the serpent and kind of befriend it. And we had actually just seen this force ability kind of come into canon, uh, that, that week on Wednesday in the release of that week's episode of the Mandalorian, where we saw the same thing from baby Yoda. Uh, so clearly that was, uh, part of that Mandalorian episode to kind of lay some groundwork for what we saw in the film here from Ray. Yeah. They, they knew it was going to be a big part of this film. It was going to be something that, uh, people have never seen another, a new, another new force power that no one knew existed, but yeah, essentially just using a little bit of your own life force and, and transforming it through the force, uh, to this other creature to heal it. And uh, again, it was a, whoa, you know, I haven't seen that before. That's interesting that right, I had not actually seen the Mandalorian, uh, at least that episode oh. of the Mandalorian uh, before going in to see uh, the rise of Skywalker. So I didn't know that it was already uh, been shown to be in existence. I thought that was the first time. It was definitely the first time I had seen it. I thought it was the first time within Star Wars canon that it had happened. So, uh, of course, watching back later, I'm like, oh, yeah, I see they laid the groundwork a little bit for it ahead of time. Yeah, it had been something that was, a, you know, that was part of the the canon within the expanded universe, but certainly it was not part of what was currently canon. Uh, and it was kind of cool to see that ability come back in. It seems like that would be when we talk about kind of dark side abilities versus light side abilities, you would think that force healing is certainly something uh, that would be within the the pantheon of skills that a Jedi might have. And uh, I think it totally made sense for that to kind of show up within the Star Wars galaxy uh, within this particular film for sure. Yeah, I, that it totally fits. It fits the character and it fits the the actual grouping of the you know those. And it also it again. I I always talk about it how I feel that you know certain characters, uh, certain Jedi, certain Force wielders can 
have certain affinities to different parts of the force. Some are, are, you know, are stronger in fighting. Some are more intellectual and are, are, are you know, and, and can do different things and use it and shape it in different ways. And obviously this is one that whether she learned it from Leia or not, uh, this is obviously one that Ray is very strong in. Yeah. Uh, and I probably should have mentioned when we were talking about Billy D. Williams, he does get to mention uh, the iconic line. I have a bad feeling about this within this particular film. So uh, that's always something that uh, any Star Wars fans looking for when they're watching any of these movies. And uh, I think I think it was probably pretty appropriate that he was the one who got to own it here. Yeah, they tapped the right person for that. And I loved it when, they, when I heard that as well. For sure. So uh, once they uh, have succeeded in actually getting this particular MacGuffin, I guess you could call it, uh, it with the Sith dagger, uh, we kind of uh, end up in a situation where in addition to that, they kind of as they were uh, escaping from the Imperials, they were headed toward uh, the ship of this uh, this character that had the Sith dagger. Uh, Luke and Lando, who was accompanying him at the time, were unable to track it down primarily because it had basically sunk beneath the sands with the Sith dagger. And as a byproduct, they end up finding the ship, which is their means to get off planet. The Millennium Falcon had been captured by the First Order. But uh, one of the things that happens during the time where they're trying to get that ship up and running is that they find Dio, who we mentioned before, who is uh, a wonderful new companion droid. Uh, we know that Star Wars is amazing about creating these new droid characters. And this one, um, my understanding was he was voiced by J.J. Abrams. So I thought that was kind of a, a neat little uh, tidbit. Yeah, uh, very cute little guy. Uh, kind of a very much a, a rescue droid, essentially, in that he doesn't necessarily, he's a little timid around the other people. He's good with BB-8, who brought him back. But, you know, the people around him, it's like, uh, uh, don't touch me. I'm not so <laughs> sure about you right now. So, obviously, he's been through some things. Right. Incredibly polite, though. No, thank you. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Very polite, Troy. Uh, so there's a little bit of comic relief there as well. But Ray senses something uh, while they're trying to get this ship up and running and kind of leaves to go check it out. And when she doesn't come back quickly, uh, you know, Finn being worried about her is kind of like, where's Ray? Uh, Chewie go out and tell her that we're getting ready to go. Well, Chewbacca wanders off and we see the Knights of Ren who are kind of hiding out uh, around the, the bend from where the ship is. Uh, who take this opportunity to help the First Order capture Chewbacca, uh, and we see him getting led away into one of the First Order shuttles. So um, at this point, actually, my wife was looking at me, and she's like, I told you he's going to die in this film. Uh, and for anyone who was looking or breaking down any of the trailers ahead of time, there was the scene where, uh, where they're in what we now know to be Kylo Ren's chambers, that all white chamber. And in the background, you can see his bandolier and his bowcaster uh, resting on a shelf in there. So one of the real big questions going in uh, to this particular film for me was, you know, how were they going to get those items from Chewbacca uh, short of him being killed or, or certainly captured. Uh, and this kind of answers that question uh, within this film. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, Chewbacca being captured um, really leads things. And they thought they were going one direction and suddenly they have to go in a different direction. Uh, and, uh, but, you know, the funny thing about this is, you know, this whole situation is set up and it's, it's also a, a big part of it is another a huge scene that we saw actually from the original teaser trailer, probably the biggest scene, well, outside of 
the Palpatine laugh, of course, but of the teaser trailer. And that's when Kylo is uh, approaching the planet and Ray is out there in the desert and she does the, you know, the run and leap and flip and everything. And that all leads to where many people were very scared that your wife might've been correct. Right. And, uh, you know, certainly they have kind of been using these films as a way to, uh, kind of be a send off for some of the classic characters and an introduction to some of the new ones. So uh, I didn't really feel like any of the old school characters were safe in this particular film. Um, and I, you know, certainly I, I figured that between Ray and Kylo, certainly one of them was unlikely to make it. Um, but Chewie is just one of those characters. He has been a constant within Star Wars. He was actually a character that got killed off in the expanded universe. And I know that there was a lot of people that, uh, that had trouble dealing with that. Uh, certainly Han Solo losing his best friend within the expanded universe was kind of something that had, uh, larger consequences within a lot of those stories. So, uh, you kind of look at Chewbacca and he's just like the droids. You can't imagine him not being around. And, uh, as we, kind of see the movie unfold uh ray and kylo end up in a tug of war with this uh this imperial shuttle that is taking off or this first order shuttle is taking off and ray is trying to keep it from leaving she's convinced that chewbacca is on board uh, kylo is trying to help it break free and uh, we really kind of get to see our first hint that there may be a darker connection for Ray in the sense that as she expends, uh, you know, the greatest amount of, of energy that she can trying to hold back this shuttle, she accidentally unleashes some force lightning uh, that ends up destroying the shuttle. And she is convinced that she has just killed Chewbacca. Yeah, it was the first time. Well, I mean, we've seen her throughout the sequel trilogy, uh, you know, going towards the dark side that that she's not afraid to be in touch with some of the dark side abilities or some of the feelings and and such uh and that was the first time i think we really got to see i'm like that was the, the signal to me i'm like hmm. yep uh, i think we now know who she is or who she is related to because i really didn't buy into the fact that she you know that she didn't have a tie into somebody in this greater star wars universe whatever the case may be now i will say about this scene as far as chewbacca this was the scene obviously that most people thought that uh, chewbacca may be dead and i heard people in the crowd around me thinking that i didn't buy it for a second that was the one thing that didn't sell me in a moment because there's no way Chewbacca was going to die that unceremoniously or that Ray was going to be the person that did it that way. And so I, 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 unfortunately, I mean, I was as much as I would have liked to have bought into that part of the storyline, not for a second did I think Chewbacca was dead at that moment. Yeah, I was in the same boat. Um, I really felt like uh, it was meant to be an, an intentional misdirection. Uh, and I know JJ Abrams loves doing that kind of stuff, but I just, there was nothing about it that made me feel like Chewbacca was really gone, but I could certainly see for someone coming in, uh, you know, especially someone who had not watched a lot of the trailers or anything like that, that, um, you know, that could have been something, there were a lot of details that were easy to miss kind of as the film were going on. And, when you did see the Imperial or the First Order shuttles parked there, there were two of them and they were leading Chewbacca on board one of them. Uh, but I was mindful of the fact that there had actually been two there and that he may not have been on the one that was destroyed. Yeah, like I said, I mean, the main part about it to me is like, okay, maybe if they're trying to, you know, we didn't know what Ray's destination was going to be at the end of this, what her, what, where she would be. You know, I really never believed that she would go completely to the dark side, even though we saw the trailer where it showed dark Ray within it. 
Uh, I guess if you were, that was the direction you were going to go, then maybe this would would be a possible way to start really moving in that direction. However, I, the fact that Chewbacca died basically off screen unceremoniously, if that had been what had happened, I just didn't, I couldn't buy that. There's just no way that they would let that happen because they, people know Chewbacca is one of, it's one of the fan favorite characters of all time. He was, if he was going to die in this film and there, obviously there was still the possibility that it could happen later on. It was going to be in some glorious firefight or he was going to be sacrificing himself or whatever the case may be. And he was going to be the hero in the end, not just somebody who was captured on a shuttle and it, you know, the circumstance happened. Yeah. And I have to correct my earlier statement. I, I was blanking on the name of the character that had the Sith dagger. Um, and that actually was a character named Ochi, uh, otherwise otherwise known as Ochi of Bastoon. He was basically a Sith assassin who was working for Palpatine. Um, he was sent to retrieve Rey um, from her parents. And, and basically, uh, Ochi was the character that Luke and Lando Calrissian were trying to track down uh, on Pasana. So uh, apologize for that. I, I couldn't remember it at the time, but I definitely had to dig it up. Um, and that was his ship that they were basically commandeering to escape from the planet. So from this point, uh, they end up having to make a trip to Kajimi, um, where they are going to track down uh, a droid smith to, uh, well, the story being that uh, C-3PO is able to translate the Sith runes on the dagger, but he can't. Um, and there's a lot of interesting conjecture for that uh, because no, this, he could. huh? He could, he right. could, he right. just couldn't, he just couldn't say it. He won't. Yes, he couldn't speak them. Uh, he could translate them, but he couldn't tell you what they said uh, because basically there had been a law passed during the Republic, the time of the Republic, uh, where basically it was forbidden for droids to translate Sith runes. And there's a lot of talk about whether that was something that Palpatine had passed during his time as Chancellor. Um, or at the beginning of the Galactic Empire, it probably would have been during the the time of the Republic, but uh, to kind of cover his tracks, and I think that there's probably something to be said for that. I, I don't think that the Sith were kind of a big topic of conversation up until that point. Uh, so he's really the only person who would have had a vested interest in people not deciphering Sith runes. Um, so there's kind of a cool tie back to the prequels with that, but... Um, Basically, it's decided that uh, they're going to go visit this character named Babu Frick on the planet of Kajimi. And this also is going to bring Poe into uh, kind of into uh, confrontation, I guess, with a little flame from his past in uh, the character of Zori Bliss, who is played by Carrie Russell. And I wasn't really sure how I, uh, what to think about Carrie Russell being in a Star Wars film. But I have to say, her character uh, definitely grew on me very quickly and was someone who I would love to see more of. Yeah, I'm all for, I'm all for uh, Zori Bliss and Babu Frick uh, spinoff uh, Disney plus series or whatever the case may be, because I, I, I enjoyed both characters, especially Babu Frick. Oh, I would. Yeah. It's so great. Yeah. I think if they're looking for, uh, for more characters to sell within star Wars galaxy's edge, if they're going to look to, uh, to make a bunch of money, a Babu Frick, like, 
uh, little animated talking character would be something that the kids would would go for no problem. I need to put him in the Droid Depot, you know, just have him be there, <laughs> you know, there's some sort of meet and greet picture with him, be working on a droid somewhere. I think that'd be perfect. Yeah. And, uh, you know, interestingly enough, they're, they're basically going to have to perform an operation on C-3PO to kind of access his deep memory uh, with the unfortunate uh, repercussion of the fact that it's going to wipe his memory and he'll forget all about everyone he knows. And uh, there is a backup of him on R2-D2, but unfortunately R2's memory banks are, are a little bit iffy. So it's kind of left uh, to the crowd's determination to determine, or it, it's kind of inferred to the crowd that we might be losing C-3PO all told. And this is what kind of led to that famous scene in the trailer where he's talking about taking one last look at his friends, uh, which was definitely a, a touching moment within the trailer and certainly within the film. Uh, but it also kind of leads to some great comedy as we go forward. Oh, <laughs> this C-3PO is maybe my favorite C-3PO, definitely since Empire Strikes Back. But this C-3PO is fantastic. C-3PO with his mind kind of washed and, <laughs> and you know, basically born an hour ago, C-3PO was awesome. Uh, I Babu loved Frick so is his much. oldest friend. Right, right. Oh, he's one of my oldest friends. He's one of my oldest friends. Loved it. Yeah, so I I, I would agree. And I thought, you know, interestingly enough, you know, we talk about in the one of the very earliest uh, posters that they had for this particular film, you saw C-3PO with Chewbacca's bandolier and the bowcaster, and people assumed it was some knockoff trailer or some knockoff poster for the film. But, I mean... This C-3PO was was certainly a lot uh, saltier than than the normal C-3PO. And like you said, I think he's definitely the one of the most likable iterations of him. Yeah, I, I, I totally enjoyed everything about him. The fact that he, in fact that he would question some of the moves they were doing. Like, why would we do that? Yeah. That's <laughs> oh, look, it's my first laser battle. <laughs> you know, when he's been through generations of laser battles. <laughs> well, going know? back to the catacombs on Pasana, right? They're all checking to make sure everyone's okay as they kind of come down through the quicksand into the uh, into the catacombs. And, and C-3PO is like, I'm all right as well. Not that anyone yeah. asked, you know? Yeah. Uh, so good. Anthony Daniels, uh, definitely, again, you know, whether you want to argue if he was better in maybe, you know, the the original or in uh, Empire Strikes Back, I could hear those arguments. But uh, this is a stunning performance one way or the other, whatever you feel about which was the best C-3PO. Definitely great job by Anthony Daniels. All right. One of the other kind of uh, interesting parts about the confrontation on Kajimi is that, you know, Kylo Ren does track them down. Um, we're kind of getting exposed to uh, General Pride, who was a new character within the First Order uh, and kind of the military leader, I guess, to Kylo Ren's supreme leader. Uh, Hux is certainly, you know, kind of in competition for, for his old command post as well. Um, but... I thought that Richard Grant played and did an amazing job of playing General Pride. He certainly was an intimidating uh, character and and someone who, with very little kind of backstory, you immediately start to like slash detest at the same time. Right. He kind of uh, he kind of had a Grand Moff Tarkin vibe to him, and the fact that you just bought right away. Okay, oh, this guy is a big bad guy and he's tied pretty closely obviously with palpatine you know although we didn't really know that to begin with but definitely he's high within the first order if he's been there 
Well, he must have been there for a long time because he was tied back to the original Empire. Exactly. So uh, I really, I totally bought into him. Again, like you said, despite having no backstory on him, I, another, I'd love to hear his backstory. Mm-hmm. And uh, so at the end of their time on Kajimi, uh, it is uh, determined by Ray and her fellows that uh, that Chewbacca is still alive and they do have a chance to rescue him on Kylo Ren's uh, command ship. And so uh, using a, a captain's chip from Zori Bliss that's basically going to allow them to, to board that Star Destroyer and go looking for Chewbacca, uh, they mount a, a rescue mission. And I thought this was a really great scene in the sense that uh, it was kind of the old divide and conquer, right? Ray had to go off and um, track down uh, Kylo Ren in his chamber. And at the same time, you had Ray and Poe, or sorry, Finn and Poe uh, off going to, to rescue C, uh, Chewbacca. Uh, but it was one of those times where I thought Finn really came into his character. Um, you know, they asked him, where should we go? And this was the perfect opportunity for him to talk about how he'd once cleaned a Star Destroyer and he knew exactly where to go. And this time he's like, I have no idea. Follow me. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I, I really love the development of Finn within this film. I, I think he's finally become the hero that you wanted to be instead of, if follow me, like you said, instead of for the first two films, he was trying to kind of just get away. You know, like, I don't want to be any part of this. This is not what I want. I just want to get out and be safe. And now he is leading, you know, he is out front leading people to where they need to go. He is going towards the fight rather than away from it. And I think that was a, a huge part of, uh, you know, again, I know, Rob, you've, uh, criticized many times the fact that, you know, there just wasn't much to Finn. He just didn't really have a great story behind him. There wasn't really a lot of character development, but but, uh, definitely here. And I think you'd agree. We now know kind of who he is and he's become who we kind of wanted him to become throughout all three films. Yeah. I just always felt like, especially within the force awakens, I felt like we were kind of given some brief glimpses of the character he could, he could be. And I thought that he had great chemistry with both Poe and Ray. Uh, so, you know, there was a lot of potential with his character and I just felt really all the way up through the end of the last Jedi that they hadn't done anything with his character. Um, to really let him kind of shine on his own. And within this film, you could, you could see that uh, they were going to let him really kind of take on the mantle of being the hero for lack of better term uh, that he had the potential to be. And he, like you said, he was not shying from anything Uh, very much the Finn that we see within rise of the resistance. And we talked about that last week um, where he is just a hundred percent dedicated to the cause and he's going to do what's right. Uh, and he has confidence in in the actions that he's taking. Right. I mean, his character arc, you know, that's what you kind of want to see. You want to see growth from characters when you're going to talk about a series of films that go over a period of time. But especially, I, I think that was a big part of this whole sequel trilogy is, you know, the development of Ray and seeing her character arc and seeing her develop as a person. Actually seeing Poe. I mean, Poe was, you know, pretty much well entrenched within the resistance when we first see him right at the beginning of uh, The Force Awakens, yet he still had a lot of growth to go through. And I think we saw that as well. And and definitely with Finn, you you see him going from this kind of fearful, you know, guy just trying to get away from the First Order, doesn't want to be a part of conflict. He just wants to get away into this leader that uh, really needed him to become. 
Yeah. The other uh, key scene within this time where they're on the First Order Star Destroyer is that we do have another one of these scenes where there is that connection between Rey and Kylo Ren, and they're able to see each other, although clearly not what environment each other is in. Uh, and they have some conversation, and then it eventually evolves into a battle uh, leading to the point where Kylo and Rey destroy the stone plinth and the Darth Vader helmet. Um, and that is really the Darth Vader helmet kind of coming to rest at Kylo's feet is when he realizes where Rey is and then heads back to the Star Destroyer to confront her directly. Uh, so we end up with a, a number of interesting things happening at that point. So we've got uh, Finn and Poe and Chewie uh, that get captured by the First Order. They're going to be executed. And General Hux, uh, ironically, is the one that comes to their rescue, not because he's fulcrum like we would have seen within Star Wars Rebels or anything, but just purely based on his own aspirations to be the leader within the uh, within the First Order and his kind of greed. He doesn't care about them. He just wants Kylo Ren to fail. I don't even think, I mean, I think it's greed to begin with, you know, and I think that's obviously the driving part of it, but I think it's just spite over Kylo right. getting this role that, that he wanted and, you know, and always kind of belittling him. It's, it seems like that had been the case ever since the force awakens. Uh, you know, that's all he'd heard from Kylo, you know, is that, you know, look, you don't, you, you don't believe him belong on the level of me or whatever. And yet, you know, and he thought, and it, we see him in the force awakens leading that grand speech where the spittles coming out and you will bow before the first order. And then to where he is now, which is still part of the leadership group, but obviously much more subservient role within the first order. He, you know, you got to feel like he's like, I'm just done with it all. I'm, you know, I fine, whatever. I just want to make sure this guy loses. <laughs> I, I love that. It's the perfect opportunity for Finn to kind of put the exclamation point on his contempt for the first order as well, because, you know, Hux doesn't want to be found out as having been the one that lets them go. So he's like, you know, shoot me in the arm so that, you know, I have an excuse that you got away. And uh, Finn just kind of looks at him and sneers and shoots him in the leg. Uh, so once again, Finn, just like, I'm not going to listen to anything you say. I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to make you hurt. I also like right before that, it was like, you know, when he says I'm the spy and Finn's like, I knew it all along. And right. Like, no, you know, you didn't. Like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, good. The comedy, the comedy was, was spot on in most of the points throughout this film. Exactly. So, you know, this, this serves as a vessel for a few things. They're able to recover the millennium Falcon from the first order. Uh, Ray and Kylo kind of have their showdown within the hangar bay and, uh, Kylo reveals the fact that uh, he knows more about Ray's parentage at this point um, and reveals to her that she is a Palpatine. So clearly, you know, this is all part of what was revealed to Kylo Ren at the beginning of the film that has kind of been kept from us. But as you said, Tom, I think that there are things leading up to that that kind of indicate where this is going. Um, you know, certainly my my working theory going a ways back was that uh, she was a Skywalker, but, um, you know, if you're looking at, at potential really strong ties to the Force that could explain both her quick learning and, and some of her innate Force abilities, as well as her power in the Force, uh, there's certainly not many stronger than, than Palpatine. Right, and, you know, and also her ability to, you know, are not be afraid to brush with the dark side as much as it, I mean, it's seems like it's in her family's nature that it should be there yet. Uh, you know, even though what's different about her is that yes, there's this dark side, this dark portion of her. She still will 
eventually, even though she'll go right to the edge, uh, turn back to the light. Right. And certainly, you know, he is trying to once again seduce her to the dark side, join up with him. Together they'll take out Palpatine. Uh, you know, he even uh, explains to her that Palpatine was the one who sent Ochi after her parents and ultimately her. Uh, and when they wouldn't reveal the location of Ray uh, to to Ochi, he basically murdered them both with that Sith dagger. So, uh, you know, she certainly had every reason to give into her rage at that point. Um, and this really kind of starts a, a period of time in the film where she's doubting herself a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, she's she's finding out that she's basically the. Uh, you know, the granddaughter of the most evil person in the universe, uh, you know, uh, hard to deal with that. I mean, you know, talk about, you know, you've heard daddy issues, how about granddaddy issues? <laughs> uh, you know, and she's already had a, a difficult time trying to figure out her place in the universe. And now it's like, is this what I am? I'm a Palpatine. I'm going to go to the dark side. I've, you know, and she's seen these, she's had these, um, these visions of, bad things happening and you know maybe this is what is definitely to come i mean always in motion the future is but uh, is this is what's going to happen so obviously you can it, it makes sense why she would be doubting herself at that moment right yeah so at this point uh the search for the wayfinder leads them to the planet of kefir which is actually another one of the moons of endor uh, not the forest moon of Endor. And this one tends to be mostly grassy plains and then certainly the the huge tumultuous ocean that we see in the trailer. Um, and this to me kind of, there's a portion of this that feels very Goonies to me um, <laughs> where, where once they've uh, done a, a classic Harrison Ford landing of the Falcon digging a, you know, 200 foot furrow in one of the planes, uh, they end up on the coastline and, and Ray realizes that this dagger has an extension that kind of comes out of it somewhat like a compass. And uh, you can line the dagger up with the Death Star wreckage to determine exactly where you need to go in the Death Star to find this other wayfinder. And it's just uh, that whole thing to me, just I could picture data <laughs> from the Goonies uh, pulling out one of his contraptions to to save the kids. Well, it makes sense. I also could see an Indiana. I mean, yeah, oh, I mean, yeah. it's still kind of one of those adventure movies, but Indiana Jones reference to that as well. And um, just, you know, an interesting way to to lay it out. And uh, just uh, another fun scene, you know, when we meet new people and there was a, I, you know, there's another scene in there that goes by the wayside, but I think it's very interesting for the future of Star Wars. And I, I'd be interested to hear what's your thoughts on it. And I don't know, if, I don't know if you know what I'm speaking of, but it does have to do with uh, the people they meet yeah. right there on Kefir. Yeah, Jana and her her uh, crew of stormtroopers that have infected. Right, that yeah. they happen, you know, that that you know when she's just sitting down and talking with Finn. And how, you know, he said they had this feeling and she's like, yeah, it was just this feeling. And it's like, okay, are you all force sensitive? And is this going to be, you know, this, this group here where they formed sensitive children that were brought in by the first order. And now is that the possible next group of Jedi we're going to see going forward? I, I think it's an interesting situation to look into in the future. Yeah. I definitely think that that's, uh, that that's implied by that conversation and, um, again, I don't know what they're going to choose to do for future Star Wars films. I think there's some other questions that get raised by the character of Jenna, who, um, you know, is this kind of wild, uh, character who's on, I won't call it a horse. It's, it's a Star Wars, a space horse, right? 
Space horse, yes. Space horse. Chewbacca's uh, a space bear. Right, right. exactly. Uh, so, you know, this group of, of kind of nomads that she's with turns out to all be these defected uh, ex-First Order uh, stormtroopers. And, and as you said, I mean, there's clearly some sort of sensitivity in the sense that uh, her story is very much like Finn's, that, that something urged them to just kind of grab a ship and, and defect from the First Order. But, um, you know, kind of getting back to the, I'm going to call it the Sith Army Knife, uh, <laughs> <laughs> all the little, uh, all the little accoutrements that pop out of it. I'm pretty sure the right. other side was a toothpick. Um, but you yeah, know, Ray, the tweezers were no help at all. <laughs> right. So, you know, Ray wants to get out there. Janice like, no, you have to wait until the tides uh, change because it's too dangerous right now. And they start to head back to the ship. And next thing you know, Ray's gone. So once again, kind of returning to her normal, uh, loner self and, and she doesn't really want to endanger anyone else, but she kind of feels like she has to go forward. Yeah, I mean, she, you know, the force calls out to you in so many ways. We've seen it over and over and over again that uh, these people who are force sensitive, they know they need to go to these certain places, sometimes for good, sometimes for bad. Uh, but she knew that this was what she had to do and, and she couldn't bring everybody else with her just for safety's sake. They, you know, I mean, but she also knew that she had to get there quickly. I mean, they, they even said, you know, like, we, we can't go there right now. The, the ocean is just it's too crazy. The seas are too high. We cannot try and make it here at this point, but she was going to do it and she needed to get it done immediately, especially with the information she had just received. Right. So, you know, she, she does make her way out to, uh, to the Death Star wreckage. Um, once again, you know, Finn steps up and, uh, kind of enlists Janna to help him get out there because he can sense that, you know, she's potentially putting herself in danger and, and he needs to be there. Um, we do get some kind of cool callbacks to the Force Awakens here, certainly with Ray kind of scaling the wreckage inside the Death Star ruins. Um, and we also get, you know, a callback to uh, Ben Kenobi uh, releasing the tractor beam in the original Star Wars film, uh, because one of the places that that she uh, kind of passes as she's making her way through that wreckage is one of those, um, you know, kind of control platforms that he kind of had to shimmy around to actually deactivate the tractor beam. So some nice little callbacks in there for, for fans of the series that are really looking for some of those fine green detail items. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I have to look back at that cause I didn't notice that. So that's kind of cool. Um, I, you know, the whole going through the death star and seeing so many things, even up to the throne room. And I know we'd seen a little glimpse of some of that within the trailers itself, but checking that all out. And then we had another, you know, throwback to the empire strikes back and you know a little bit to the last jedi with kind of a another dark cave evil cave whatever you want to call it uh going forward yeah the uh the chamber i guess where the artifacts are kept and where she finds that wayfinder uh she kind of comes face to face with her dark side image um I did think that the, yeah, the, I know that Charles and Pat had referred to it kind of as the, the Smeagol moment where, uh, dark Ray kind of bears her teeth and they're all pointed and, you know, it's kind of, that, um, right. was a great, you know, kind of a great jump scare moment. Um, but I, you know, it's kind of a reflection of where Ray's head is at this point. You know, she's been talking about the fact that everyone says they know who she is and she's afraid no one does. Um, she is at this point concerned that kind of her dark heritage is going to control her destiny. Um, and, you know, even this late in the film, there is some question about 
uh, you know, whether she's going to rise above that and, and choose to do the right thing. Right. Well, I mean, we, we had the whole episode, you know, a couple months back where you were talking about the dark cave or again, I forget what it's actually called or whatever you yeah, want to call it. Whatever you want to call we it. had the whole discussion about how it kind of shows you your greatest fear or, you know, it shows you yourself in a different light. And we, we saw that with, uh, with Luke, we saw that, uh, you know, in rebels with, uh, with, or excuse me, in Clone Wars with Yoda. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we've we've also, within the, the comics, now seen a little bit of it with Kylo as well, with Ben Solo. Uh, so, you, you you know, you it, I think it's exactly what happened in this. It's very, very much a callback to Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And certainly, you know, that's always been used as a very powerful, um, a very powerful commentary on letting your fears control your destiny, I guess. And, and that's really what a lot of this is about is, you know, and, and even in the trailer, right. Luke talks about the fact that confronting fear is the destiny of a Jedi. And, uh, it's really about rising above that, controlling it, not letting it own who you are and not letting it drive how you behave. And, um, that's really the journey that Ray is on here. And in a lot of ways, it's, uh, the story about the redemption arc for Ben Solo, right? Having the, having the courage to stand up and do the right thing, regardless of the fact that he'd created his own very dark legacy through his actions. Um, and that he was having very much the same reaction as Anakin Skywalker had, uh, as Luke was trying to redeem him that, you know, it's too late for me. Um, because he felt like the, you know, the weight of all the evil that he had done was, going to not allow him to rise above that at any point in time. And I, I think the commentary there is that, uh, you know, you're never too far gone. It's just a matter of making the right choice and then continuing to make those right choices. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I mean, you know, if look, if Anakin Skywalker who slaughtered younglings can come back and be redeemed. And there is no reason why. And we've, we've mentioned this many times, whether it be on, um, on the Hyperion Adventures podcast, whether it be on the Jedi Temple Archives podcast, uh, there was no reason Ben Solo could not have been redeemed. And um, the way it played out, and by the way, Adam Driver's portrayal throughout the entire uh, sequel trilogy, but especially in this film, was phenomenal he was so good in this role um and and for that matter daisy ridley with ray i i thought her acting throughout has been wonderful and i i really the emotions that express on their face through many of these different scenes through the trials and tribulations that they're going through um i bought into it completely one million percent it was excellent and um i i i really wish they would get seen in a higher light you know maybe whatever you think critically at the film their actual portrayal of these roles was spectacular yeah i i would agree with that i mean i i never had an issue really with the the quality of the acting in the film sometimes i took exception to some of the directorial choices that were made um but again i mean that's my opinion i i respect other people's opinions as well and again i thought uh in re with regards to them portraying the characters that they were being asked to portray, they did an excellent job. So uh, I will also say that, you know, it's, it's an interesting conversation to be had about redeeming a person like Darth Vader or like Ben Solo, uh, you know, and his personification as, as Kylo Ren. Um, you know, my wife and I have talked about this quite a bit. And, you know, her opinion is when you have someone that's done that much evil, you really can't redeem them and have them live on because, 
the galaxy just simply would not accept them. And I can certainly understand that, but I also have come from the background of having read all the expanded universe novels and certainly something that Star Wars was not afraid to do within those novels was to have Jedi that had fallen to the dark side and taken actions that could potentially have, have led to the loss of innocent lives. Um, and they were then brought back to the light side and not necessarily killed off. They then continued on as Jedi. And certainly it dealt with the fact that there was a lot of trust issues and things like that, that um, were the repercussion of those actions that they had taken while under the influence of the dark side. But um, I get that, you know, with someone like a Kylo Ren uh, who killed his own father or Vader, certainly that had killed younglings and any number of people, Jedi, et cetera, uh, that, you know, that's a, a kind of a dangerous topic uh, when it comes to whether fans are going to accept a storyline where they get redeemed and actually live on in the story. Yeah, well, I mean, it happened even in canon within the Attack of the Clones. I mean, Anakin did go and slaughter all those uh, Tusken Raiders, all those Sand People, and came back and did tell at least some of the uh the Jedi Council about it because Yoda mm -hmm. knows about it and, uh, you know, and still was brought in and still was a hero and leading forces within the, the Clone Wars itself, you know, so it wasn't like it was unheard of that someone has, you know, gone over to maybe the wrong side of the force for a little bit, but we're going to bring you back in and done really, really terrible things and brought you back in. I mean, that's a small, obviously a, a smaller version of what we've seen throughout the expanded universe. And of course what happens with Anakin later and what had happened with Ben Solo, but still it, it is there. It is a fact that the Jedi were willing to welcome you back in as long as you kind of are taking the steps and it use it kind of as a, a, a learning tool. Right. Uh, so yeah, within, within the scenes, within the, the wreckage of the Death Star, it kind of, uh, comes to, it comes to its, you know, uh, to its head, I guess, with the confrontation between Ray and Kylo then showing up after she has obtained that wayfinder. Uh, you know, Kylo gets a hold of that wayfinder and crushes it. Uh, and this is very much a scene where Ray is, you know, due, due to the fact that she's very much questioning herself and kind of feeling like she's enthralled to this dark heritage that she's found out about. Uh, she and, uh, Ben Solo or, or Kylo Ren really at this moment engage in a lightsaber duel. Uh, and it's really the first time we see Kylo clearly having the upper hand in one of their duels. And it seems to be fairly effortless. Yeah, he definitely was in control through most of it. I mean, she put, and you could just tell she's not herself. She, you know, just the way she's going through the fight He's rather nonchalant with it, having an easy time, and was about to win that duel near the end. Yeah, uh, and certainly this is the point where Leia, who's kind of, uh, whose health has been failing, she's uh, in a coma, she's kind of, her life force is sort of fading, and this is where she, uh, it kind of, it ties back to me. So one of the things with Mace Windu, one of his force abilities was he was able to sense what was called a shatter point, and he could kind of figure out where events came together, where a small bit of action could have a very large impact and he could kind of sense your weakness or, or, or the perfect moment to strike to get the maximum effect. And that seems to be something that we kind of see here with Leia. She has sensed that events have proceeded to a point where now if she expends her life force to 
to, um, you know, act in this moment that she can have a chance to bring back her son. Uh, and so she passes and, and Kylo feels that. Um, and basically it is what gives Ray the moment she needs as he lets go of his lightsaber. She grabs it and spears him with it uh, in the stomach and essentially scores what should be a mortal wound against him. And then she feels the loss of Leia as well. And it, and it impacts her very deeply as well. Yeah, you could very much tell. And, I, you know, the question is, is how much, you know, obviously, you know, it was pretty obvious that uh, Leia passing affected Ben deeply. And that goes back to, I mean, we even saw it within The Last Jedi when he was about to fire on uh, on the ship, on the Radis, And, you know, he, he could sense her there and he couldn't do it at the last moment. So there was still this close tie with his mother and, uh, you know, but, you know, the, what I was talking about is that you, you go and you see the obvious effect of her on Ben and that totally makes sense. But obviously she's imprinted herself so much on Ray that she feels it so deeply as well that it's, it's really a, a, a big moment. And um, I definitely is the, the turning point of the whole film. Right. And actually it's interesting because the impact on Ray is that she realizes that the, the wound that she inflicted on Ben Solo, I mean, I think that part of the reason that, that she immediately feels regret about that is that she was clearly acting in anger in that moment. Uh, and Leia's passing really drove home the point that she was not acting in the way that her master had instructed her. Uh, and so once again, we see her employ the force healing to save uh, Ben's life. And at this point, you know, he really is more Ben Solo than, than Kylo Ren, uh, although he hasn't quite grown to embrace that yet but it also her passing triggers a memory within him and and as ray leaves uh he has a moment where he has a vision of han solo uh, and they kind of reenact that scene within the force awakens where he ends up igniting the saber and killing his father uh, but this time this memory uh that is really brought on by the death of leia gives him the strength to turn and, and throw that saber into the ocean and really cast off the mantle of Kylo Ren. Exactly right. Um, yeah, it plays out almost precisely the way it does in The Force Awakens. And the way when you watch The Force Awakens, every time I watch it still, this is like the way I wish it would have turned out to begin with because right. no one wanted to see Han Solo die. I mean, come on. that was Well, not no one. Harrison no. Ford totally wanted to see him die, but... Well, that's true. Harrison <laughs> Ford did. And apparently J.J. did as right. well because he went along with it. But, uh, you know, when you get to that point, you, you know, it, it, it turns out the way you thought that might turn out the first first viewing of it. And, um, yeah, you can see, again, it's the turning point of Leia uh, passing on her life force, passing on her energy, reminding her son of who he really is at heart. Right. Right. It's certainly a powerful moment. Uh, so, you know, Ray basically has left this, this particular planet in Kylo's TIE Interceptor. Uh, and Kylo is, is stranded on the, the wreckage of the Death Star as far as we know. But Ray returns to the island of Octo, intent on 
basically uh, she sets fire to the tie and is intent on living out her life much in the way that uh, Luke was planning on living his, where he, where she was just going to become a hermit uh, and kind of withdraw from the greater galaxy. Uh, and there, you know, the the scene where she gets ready to throw the Skywalker lightsaber into the burning wreckage, um, the moment that it gets caught by by uh, Force Ghost Luke. Uh, who kind of admonishes her that that's not the way to treat the weapon of a Jedi. I know we talked about this when we did the the Hyperion episode on The Last Jedi, and that was certainly, I think, more than just me. I think there were a lot of people who somewhat took exception to the way that uh, Luke kind of casually flipped that lightsaber away. And it certainly, um, to me, struck me as something that was being done to kind of uh, mend fences, I guess, with all the fans that, that had that same issue. Yeah, I, I got that right off the bat. I'm like, oh, you know, that is a direct mention to what happened within The Last Jedi, within the beginning of The Last Jedi. And, um, you know, I also think it it does show, you know, because if you go back to The Last Jedi, Luke, when that scene happens, no matter what you think about it, and I will say that, you know, the way he threw it was bad. I, right. I had no problem with the fact that he you know, tossed away the lightsaber in some way, shape or form, or if you had handed it back to Ray or whatever, the, did, didn't accept the lightsaber, whatever the case may be. Right. Uh, but also the fact that he, that was at his lowest point, he was in a really bad state, but obviously, you know, we went through the last Jedi, what happened there, he goes out, you know, basically saves the remem- the remaining uh, members of the resistance, uh, you know, by causing this distraction and, you know, he, and he gets spoken to by Yoda and, you know, reminding him of who he is and that failure is just part of being a person, being alive and, and, and is a great lesson to learn. And I, I just felt like that was also showing growth of the fact that that was silly that I threw the lightsaber definitely never treat it that way. Right. Uh, and then we finally get treated to a scene where, you know, in, in an effort to let Ray rejoin the fight, uh, Luke finally is able to uh, raise, raise the X-Wing out of the water. And I know that this is kind of something that, as you said before, you know, it's, you wanted the Han Solo and, and Kylo Ren scene to turn out differently in The Force Awakens. We certainly all, uh, who all of us who had enjoyed uh, watching The Empire Strikes Back, and uh, certainly that's been something that we've been enjoying for quite some time. But, uh, you know, the the failure of Luke to raise the X-Wing out of the swamp in that film gets redeemed in this particular moment as he is able to raise his sunken X-Wing out of the waters of Octo and uh and provide that to to ray as a way to get her back in the battle and also showing what uh, was brought out forth in the last jedi that i know i know you mentioned within our star wars remembered series the fact that we now see the blue glowies as you like to call them <laughs> um uh able to interact right with the uh, everything that's around them by first catching the lightsaber and then lifting the X-Wing, and of course, back in The Last Jedi, when uh, when Yoda was able to call down the Force Lightning on the temple tree, whatever it was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, certainly be interesting to see if they ever are able to actually physically manifest. But they, this is, again, like you said, it's the closest we've seen to them actually being present in the physical world uh, and not just someone who can sit there and potentially give you advice on how to proceed. So, um, you know, that was, that was definitely a cool scene. I... I don't know about you, but when uh, when Ray is taking 
the uh, the Wayfinder that she had taken out of the TIE fighter and using that to kind of track down Exegol and Palpatine. And uh, and she shows up as as Red 5 on, uh, on the scanners. That was definitely something that gave me a tingle. It was kind of cool to see uh, someone back in that old Skywalker X-Wing again. Yeah, and Red 5. When, when Red 5 showed up and they mentioned that it was Red 5, I, that just tickled me to death. I just loved the heck out of some of these callbacks. And that was a very specific one and one that can go by the wayside if you're not really paying attention, but uh, just such a, a wonderful, wonderful callback. For sure. Yeah. And I don't want to jump over the the key scene that I know we mentioned earlier and that we definitely have to talk about now, which is that when Finn and Poe and Chewie and uh, the gang kind of get the Millennium Falcon back to the base there, um, and find out that Leia has died, uh, the reaction that Chewbacca had uh, totally gave me chills, and I'm sure it was an emotional moment for you as well. God, it wrecked me. It wrecked <laughs> me. I mean, more than, I mean, we knew that Leia was probably going to pass at somewhere within this film. I mean, you know, Carrie Fisher had passed you know, a couple of years prior to this, and, and they were having to use footage from, uh, the Force Awakens and, and such to kind of fill in the, the gaps here and there. Um, so, you know, you kind of knew that was going to happen, so you were kind of prepared for that. But I was not prepared for, for Chewbacca's devastation at hearing that Leia had passed away. And the, the emotion that he expressed there, that Jonas Suetamo, uh expressed as Chewbacca, as, it just, it ruined me for just a few minutes there. It was so excellently done and heartbreaking all at the same time. Yeah. And I realized I actually uh, missed a, a key moment there on the Island of Octo kind of before Ray leaves uh, Luke reveals to her that uh, her master had something that she would have wanted Ray to have and uh, takes her to the hut where, where she had stayed while there or that Luke had basically concealed her lightsaber in uh, and gave her the lightsaber that Leia had made in her Jedi training. So it's really the first time we've ever been exposed to uh, in this film, certainly the, the details that Leia had actually completed her Jedi training uh, and chosen to stop because she had a, a premonition or a force vision that if she continued as a Jedi, it was going to lead to the death of her son. Uh, but to actually see the lightsaber that she had created and to kind of um, kind of tie the twins together from the original trilogy to this kind of de facto twins that you get with Ray and Kylo where they have this, they've, uh, they've got this relationship where they're a dyad in the force and essentially two halves of a whole, which you would very much be able to describe Luke and Leia as, as well. Yeah. I, I think that's no question about that. And, uh, yeah, the lightsaber is like, Oh yeah. You know, and then the, you know, Luke tells the story of the training and everything. And that's when it all, you kind of assumed at that point that, you know, Leia had, had done more training than maybe we had known prior to that, definitely prior to The Last Jedi. Uh, and, and that just brought it all full circle. And, you know, the fact that she, not only did she take some training, she pretty much had completed it right to the end. And, yeah, seeing the lightsaber. And I haven't seen that, by the way. Has that appeared at Doc Undar's yet? I, I'm, I'm sure Leia's lightsaber's got to be showing up sometime soon. Yeah, it hasn't yet. They've just released the the Ray saber, basically the repaired uh, version of the Skywalker lightsaber, as well as Ben Solo's. Uh, original Jedi lightsaber. So it's essentially very similar to the Kylo Ren, just doesn't have the the cross, uh, the, I'm sorry, the um, 
uh, the cross guard on it essentially. So, um, or the Quillians is, uh, as rural farm boy would make sure that I call them. So, uh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, uh, no, I'm sure that's coming and it's probably going to be gorgeous when it does come. So I'm sure those are going to be snagged up. Yeah, it is definitely, yeah. yeah, it's definitely the saber of a princess. So, um, you know, again, don't, don't think all princesses need to be saved. Some of them can kick some butt. Oh yeah. <laughs> definitely one of them. Right. Sure. So, yeah. So this basically leads up to the, the final confrontation where Ray has gone off to Exegol to face down Palpatine. She's basically leaving the navigational data for the resistance to follow her there, uh, to take on this fleet of planet killer star destroyers that the emperor has created that have already wiped out Kajimi. And they're basically going into it in hopes that, that, uh, Lando and his crew are going to save the day. Um, meanwhile, we've got Ray kind of having her final confrontation with Palpatine. And once again, you know, this is very much the antithesis of what we saw in Return of the Jedi, where Luke in defiance, you know, throws down his saber and says, I'm a Jedi like my father before me, and you're not going to turn me. Uh, Ray is broken down uh, by Palpatine. And basically Palpatine is showing her that, that the resistance forces are completely outnumbered. And once again, the only way that she's going to be able to save her friends is by giving in to his wishes and becoming uh, essentially his replacement, uh, taking on his, his essence by killing him and, you know, taking on the mantle as the, the dark Lord of the Sith. Uh, and he almost has her defeated uh, at the point where Ben Solo finally makes his appearance and uh, at the Ben Solo challenge, which is all the hot, <laughs> the hot <laughs> news on the internet right now, right? Uh, where he is confronted by the Knights of Ren and is kind of getting it handed to him. Uh, and he puts his hands behind his head just as Ray takes the saber back. And when his hands come back out, he's got the Skywalker lightsaber. And I have to, I had to laugh at the flourish she gives uh, to the Knights of Ren kind of, you know, shall we dance? Right. It's so good. It's so well done. I'm like, Oh, well, here we go. Yeah. Let's do it. Uh, it, you know, it, it also, you know, it's interesting because there were a couple of things that happened in both the last Jedi and in, uh, the rise of Skywalker leading into this when they were kind of communicating with one another, but they could never see where each other was. They could see each other, but never where each other was. And eventually we got to see, and it happened in The Last Jedi with some like splashes of water coming across to Kylo from Octo. And obviously when they both kind of destroyed the uh, pedestal where Darth Vader's melted helmet was, and that's how Kylo realized where Rey was on the ship, um, that they kind of set this in motion, like, look, Things can be passed through between both sides, even though they don't exactly know where the two are. And I just thought, wow, that was a great job of setting that up to be able to pass that lightsaber to him. Right. And it certainly certainly was interesting. There was a spoiler kind of about how this was going to end. And and I had uh, unfortunately seen it kind of without meaning to. Um, And I was a little bit concerned about how the ending of this might play out. But I have to say that I thought that they handled it uh, really well. Um, basically, Ben then appears after wiping out the Knights of Ren to kind of stand beside Rey and face off against the Emperor. And just as, uh, you know, she had kind of been a part of the reason that he had the strength to throw off his mantle of Kylo Ren, uh, he kind of gave her the strength to stand up to the Emperor and defy him. Uh, 
And I thought that it was really interesting because Palpatine, it seemed out of character for him to say, strike me down and, and I'll infuse you with my essence and you will rule. I always felt like he was going to essentially take over her, uh, her body and her consciousness and basically rule through her. Uh, but once he realized that he was not going to be able to do that, he kind of went with plan B and was able to use the force lightning to suck the essence out of both her and Kylo Ren and renew himself at least to his Sith um, form as we would have seen him within the return of the Jedi. Well, I got to believe that he didn't put the two things together from what, at least that's from I got from the film is that he didn't realize the dyad until he got them both together in the same room and then realized, look, I, Oh, wow. Instead of having, you know, me, you know, whether it be Ray take over and just be, you know, the next Palpatine or whether I kind of put my essence essentially, you know, into her and, and ruling through her, whatever the case may be. Now I can take the life force from both of these people and restore myself. And I, I just thought that was fascinating. By the way, I wanted to go back just a second. I also found fascinating that in the lightsaber battle that was right before that, the, the lightsaber that Ray hands to Ben is Luke's lightsaber or Correct. was Luke's lightsaber. She fights with Leia's lightsaber, which essentially is, you know, okay, so the the masters that taught them the, each the most they were fighting with their lightsabers during that one scene. I just, I, I found it kind of fascinating. Yeah, I do. I do think there's a huge amount of, uh, you know, symbolism in that. And to the point about the dyad, I don't see, I, I read it that uh, Palpatine totally knew about the dyad because he was through Snoke taking credit for having formed that bond. And I always thought that was a lie, but uh, he clearly through Snoke would have recognized that there was a connection between the two of them. I just kind of got the feeling that he, couldn't do anything with it unless he had them both in front of him. He couldn't kind of siphon off the, the energy of them unless both halves of the dyad were there. So I just kind of felt like for him, it was uh, kind of an opportunity that he hadn't been expecting. Yeah, uh, it could be makes yeah. sense. Uh, yeah, to me, I like, and I'll have to watch it again as I plan to, of course, no, of course. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, I, I kind of thought he was almost a little surprised by it was his, and maybe the, maybe the surprise was that he was able to get them both there in front of him at the right. same time. I don't know, but I just it felt like he was like, oh, great, this isn't even better. You know? <laughs> so, and then again, I, yeah, and no. Palpatine then proceeds to make the greatest mistake that anyone in any Star Wars film ever can make by trying to do away with Ben Solo by throwing him into a pit. <laughs> never, works. Never works. never works never works you cannot throw a force user into a pit and kill him uh i i challenge you to go find an example of it within the films uh, i'm looking at you mace windu yeah, where are you right. at that's right he's out there somewhere i'm i'm convinced of it uh but <laughs> it was it wasn't so much a pit it was you know out the window right so if they would have thrown him in a pit i'm sure he would have been back by now uh but uh, you know, Ray then is able to, uh, basically Palpatine had sucked the essence out of both of them. Right. So Kylo gets picked up, thrown down the pit. Ray is laying there on the ground. Palpatine unleashes this torrent of force lightning into the, into the forces, which at this point also include the reinforcements that Lando Calrissian has shown up with, which consists of apparently every ship in the known galaxy. 
<laughs> it seemed like it. I, I don't know, I mean, if somebody was waiting for like a, a star bus to get there, like I got an appointment. Uh, well, I'm sorry. You're not getting there. They're, they're, We're going to Exegol today. Right. I, star tours was up there. I'm sure. Uh, I, I, po- I posted, uh, <laughs> I posted out on social media that my working theory is that that was Lando just put out a call to every boyfriend or husband uh, whose girlfriend slash wife he had seduced over the years and said, I'm going to be at these coordinates if you want a piece of me. And uh, that would explain. Yeah. By the way, it just, you mentioned star tours and I, 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 this is a spoiler alert. If you haven't written on the new version of star tours, uh, when you go on it and you knew that there were going to be some new scenes uh, coming to it from the rise of Skywalker and you go in there originally you go in and you see the, you know, the, the desktop ruins there and everything. And, and then you leave there and then you're waiting for the next hologram to show up, you know, as it always does. And then when Lando Calrissian showed up for me, when the first time I we wrote it after the film, I was, I, I was dumbfounded. I was so excited. I, cause I knew what was going to happen then. I didn't know going in that that was going to happen. So when he shows up and one, it was just great to see him there. As I told you, it was great to see him within this film. Um, but then as soon as he shows up, I'm like, Oh my gosh, we're going to be part of this battle. We're going to be <laughs> one of those ships that shows up. I was so excited and on near tears. As you know me, I, I cried <laughs> near tears, riding, riding star tours. It was the best thing ever. I was so happy. And please go. Obviously, I spoiled it for you, but go ride Star Tours <laughs> as part of your Disney experience because the new scenes are fantastic. Well, hello there, C-3PO. <laughs> His- <laughs> oh, so good. His awesome so Lando swagger, yeah, and he uh, he basically summons it to Exegol as well. So Star Tours does get uh, to, to play a small part in the Battle of Exegol there, but um, certainly while while Palpatine is essentially shorting out the entire uh, Resistance fleet and all these new ships that Lando has brought uh, has brought in and that are actually starting to effectively take out uh, this this fleet of the Final Order that he has created. Um, Ray is basically lying on the ground and she starts calling out to the ancestors or the former Jedi that came before her, uh, once again saying, hear me. And we get an amazing, uh, kind of collage of voices out of the history of the Jedi. We get, uh, everyone from old Obi-Wan, new Obi-Wan, uh, we get, uh, Ahsoka Tano, we get Kanan Jarrus, uh, we get Mace Windu, uh, we get Anakin, so they all kind of lend her their support uh, and essentially bolster her to kind of get up and and finish the fight against Palpatine. Uh, and that certainly was kind of a stirring moment, especially to hear some of those voices kind of coming across. And I thought it was far more effective than than if anyone had actually shown up in blue glowy form or anything like that, just to to know that she had all the Jedi inside of her, just as Palpatine was claiming that all the Sith that had ever existed were inside of him. Just thinking about that scene gives me chills. It's an amazing scene. It's amazing to hear all the voices. I still... You know, I watched it a couple of times and still trying to pick them all out and what say, who says what phrase and everything else. And there's some that, you know, and it's interesting because there's some of the Jedi that are within it aren't some of the more well-known ones, you know, which is really even more fascinating about it. But it's just, it covers so many different uh, parts of the Star Wars universe brought together. And then the fact that they're telling her to rise, rise, rise it's just, it's so strong and so well done and, uh, it, it, it's just a 
phenomenal scene. Right. And really at the same time that this is going on, you've got Finn and Janna and uh, the members of, of the resistance kind of leading an attack against the, the flagship, the Star Destroyer that General Pride is using as his flagship uh, that's basically trying to get all these Star Destroyers in orbit so they can engage their shields. And uh, if they're successful in that, they're going to be an unstoppable force. And, um, you know, this is the scene where they've got the space horses kind of charging across the decks of uh, one of the Star Destroyers and kind of leading that barrage to take out the, the dish that's sending out the signal. And once again, I mean, you kind of get a chance to see that Finn is all in here. Uh, he is going to complete this mission no matter what it takes. And uh, it's just, I mean, he really comes into his own as a leader within that particular scene. Yeah, uh, no question. Again, the many chances they were trying to retreat and many throughout that scene uh, as things weren't going exactly the way they wanted. But he realized there was a way to take out this ship and he stayed again. He went towards the fight rather than away from it. Again, showing how his uh, character arc had come you know, all the way around to where he is now the hero we expected him to be. Right. And so as Leia, uh, I'm sorry, Leia, <laughs> It tells you where my head is. Uh, as Ray is able to finally rise and confront Palpatine, uh, she calls both Luke and Leia's saber to her hands and kind of arrays them in an X as Palpatine directs the force lightning at her. And I thought this was a great callback to Revenge of the Sith, that scene between Mace Windu and Palpatine. And kind of the way I always read that scene is that, you know, Palpatine was using the force lightning against Mace Windu and he was blocking it with the saber. And it was kind of causing a feedback loop, which is what was directing the, the force lightning kind of back into Palpatine and causing him to somewhat decay. Um, and this was just kind of that taken to the next level. And as he tried, you know, he basically couldn't stop uh, pouring this energy into the crossed blades and it just kept getting stronger and stronger and stronger and ultimately ended up blowing him to dust. Um, and I just thought that this was, you always kind of wondered, how is a Jedi supposed to win a battle when they're supposed to be passive and they're not supposed to attack, especially in anger? Uh, and I thought that this was a great way of kind of resolving that. Um, and explaining, you know, how a passive Jedi could be victorious in a battle against someone as, as powerful as Palpatine. Yeah, let the evil burn themselves out, essentially, with their own flame, uh, what it turned out to be. I thought it was perfectly done. I thought the same thing that you did, Rob, that it was interesting to see uh, this defensive style, this passive style, be the winner in this all. And it, it, it's really... And it also showed Ray coming around because, you know, before we'd seen her fight and she was kind of an aggression in a very aggressive style through her lightsaber duels uh, and her, her use of the saber. And for this to be just there and deflect this bolt back on him, it was, again, it was Ray, her arc coming full circle. Yeah, for sure. Um, and, you know, the other thing about this is, right, as the voices tell her to rise, I kind of read it like they were infusing her with their with their power with their force with their energy uh and so kind of as this confrontation with palpatine ends and they kind of withdraw from her he had sucked so much of the life force out of her that she was basically spent she had she had kind of used the last remaining uh reservoirs of her life force to 
kind of ward off uh, Palpatine. And so she ends up dropping to the ground and, and clearly has died at this point. Um, and you, you kind of get that verified by Finn's reaction when he sensed her presence within the force disappear, uh, where he could tell that she had passed. Yeah, there was no question that she had 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 died at that moment. That she had uh, spent every last bit of her life force trying to make this happen to uh, to be where she was at this point. And whether she was bolstered by the other Jedi, I mean, you know, they did say, you know, all the Jedi are you know, are now within me, you know, against all the Sith or whatever. Um, whether that was just her saying that or whether that was actually true. Either way, that was the last of what she had left, and she, you know, gave her life to essentially save the universe from this evil. Yeah, and uh, you know, so it's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of a dark moment. You're like, okay, so Ray and Ben are both going to die within this particular film, and then you see Ben's hand kind of come out of the pit, reinforcing what I've always said about throwing force users down pits. <laughs> um, he never could have possibly been dead. Uh, so he kind of drags himself to her side and returns the favor uh, that she had, or the gift that he had given her by kind of healing him with the force uh, and basically heals her with his remaining force essence. Uh, and we get to see something that we haven't seen in the entire arc of the sequel trilogy, which is as she uh, kind of comes back, uh, from beyond the grave, he gives a small smile and, and we have not seen Ben Solo or Kylo Ren at any point in this series smile at all. Yeah. Uh, again, uh, completing his character arc, uh, the change that he had coming back to uh, basically the young man that he was before he started to get twisted by the dark side of the force, but uh, coming back, uh, you know, and using his life force to resurrect Ray. And, you know, I, I think within himself, feeling like I, I have, I, I, there was good in me. I, I brought out the good. I, you know, I don't know whether he thought re, he redeemed himself, but you could see him going through before he ends up use, giving his life force of understanding the situation. Look, you know, I could have stayed here and been the one to live and go back, but what does that mean for everybody out there? Right. Am I the hero that everybody needs? No. It's Ray. Ray is the hero that this galaxy needs. I need to find a way to bring her back if I can. And he does with tragic consequences for himself. Yeah, it's a very Romeo and Juliet kind of moment because as she kind of comes back to herself and gives him a kiss, then he immediately uh, dies. And interestingly enough, I mean, he passes not only <laughs> uh, he not only dies, but he uh, turns into a force ghost immediately. So there's no possibility of of doing anything to save him at that point and certainly for uh, a character that within this entire sequel trilogy we have only seen uh, acting kind of on behalf of the dark uh, the fact that the sacrifice that he made to redeem himself at the end of this film justified him kind of uh, merging with the living force and and kind of uh, his corporal body disappearing um, was a little bit of a surprise I think a little bit. I mean, although, I mean, we haven't seen it, uh, but we know that he did good things as, you know, while learning under Luke. And as a matter of fact, some of that is coming out now in the, the comics that are the Kylo Ren comics. We're kind of finding out more about uh, who he was before he, when he was still young Ben Solo before he became uh, Kylo Ren. Uh, so you're kind of seeing a little bit of that. Um, you know, I, I just, and the one thing about, and I found this, throughout the sequel trilogy is I've always 
thought that we were going to see this redemption of Ben Solo. I never doubted it. Well, maybe a little, I doubted it every once in a while, but mostly I really believed that this was good, what was going to happen because there were just too many times where you could see little glimpses of good in him, the conflict within him, very similar to uh, what we saw with Darth Vader and Anakin. And I, I just really believe that at some point we're going to see him back on the good side, uh, something, and it probably was going to have to be some sort of sacrifice. And that's exactly what we got. Yeah. And certainly, I mean, where with Anakin, uh, there was always kind of this pull to the dark with him with Ben, it was clearly stated in force awakens that what he was feeling was the pull to the light. And I think right. that was kind of his default setting. He had just been so sadly corrupted by the emperor, both through, you know, Vader as well as Snoke, um, you know, that, that he'd never really had a, a chance. And certainly you don't want to excuse the fact that he did have a choice, but uh, he was manipulated as Palpatine was wont to do. Uh, and as we said, he's he's a master of manipulation, a master of the long game. And and uh, Ben Solo was, was his unwitting pawn for a lot of this uh, sequel trilogy. So, um, you know, we, we get returned back to Ajahn Kloss to see the resistance celebrating. I did think it was interesting. Um, I'm pretty sure that I saw the ghost setting down kind of in the background as they were doing the establishing shot there. So keep an eye out for that the next time you watch it for any of you that are big uh, Star Wars Rebels fans. Um, and I'm assuming it's the ghost. It's, it's the same model of ship. Uh, so my, my working assumption is that they're not just going to throw that ship in without it being the ghost. And, uh, and you really get to see the three primary heroes kind of sharing a moment. And my understanding was that was also shot kind of at the end of, of the production schedule. So they were also celebrating, you know, kind of the end of, of their time together uh, as actors within this series. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it was, it was celebratory and it was deservedly so. And it was what you kind of wanted to see at the end of this film, you know, callbacks to, Return of the Jedi, where there's the big celebration at the end, you know, made bigger in the special editions and whatever going forward. But, you know, even before it was a small yub-nub celebration on Endor, it was a celebration just the same. And it, it kind of brought that back again, kind of another callback. And, um, you know, there's some cameos in there that uh, one of my favorite people shows oh, up there just for a brief second. I picked him right out. And, nice. Uh, <laughs> Lin-Manuel Miranda, for anyone who doesn't know Tom. So. Yes. Yeah. Who, who actually uh, wrote the the song that you hear on Fasana. Oh, that's right. very cool. Yeah, I yeah. did not know that. Um, the, the other kind of cool thing about the the end celebration there is that they do a celebratory montage where they're kind of showing uh, the First Order Star Destroyers that had been uh, stationed at some of these more famous planets like Bespin or, or uh, the Forest Moon of Endor. You get to see that Warwick Davis cameo uh, where he returns as Wicket and his son is actually there as as Wicket's son within that particular shot. So that was kind of a cool moment. Um, and it was very much a callback to kind of the modified ending to Return of the Jedi, the non-Yub-Nub, uh, right. which is probably the one that most people are familiar with. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, there was a nod to that. Um, and then the final scene where we see uh, Ray return to Tatooine to kind of, uh, you know, bring everything back to where it started. Um, there were a lot of really cool things that they that they did within this final shot, not the least of which being that, you know, she picks up a piece of scrap metal. They, they've returned to the the uh, Lars homestead 
and uh, it's largely buried under sand, but she uh, grabs a sheet, a piece of sheet metal and rides that down a small decline, just like she did when we saw her at the beginning of The Force Awakens, kind of bringing her story full circle. She even has a smile on her face doing it, you know, like kind of remembering like this, you know, this was where I was at one point not very long ago. And look where I am now. And she with this smile as she slides down into there. And yeah, yeah, great callback to Force Awakens. Also, of course, the, the Lars Homestead there. Great callback to New Hope. Um, just just a, just a wonderful little scene. Yeah, and she uh, she ends up wrapping up Luke and Leia's sabers uh, and then uses the Force to sink those in the desert. So uh, kind of a fitting end to lay those to rest and again, the place where everything started. Um, and as she stands up, you then see that she has her own lightsaber. Uh, and this is something that I've been waiting for really since The Force Awakens. I was always convinced that she was going to be a, a saber staff wielder. Uh, she was so comfortable with that staff and she had actually used pieces of that staff that she carried throughout this entire sequel trilogy to make her own saber. I can't guarantee that it's a double bladed saber, but it certainly had that configuration. Um, it looked like it could potentially emit blades from both ends. And the other interesting thing to note about it was that that yellow blade was the blade of the Jedi temple guards. It's the blade of, of the, uh, the Jedi guardians and, and the people who essentially were protecting the Jedi temple. And she is very much that, uh, within the sequel trilogy, she is the one that saved, the ancient Jedi texts and is really carrying the, the, uh, the spirit of the Jedi on with her for a new generation. Yeah. Which, you know, you got to believe that that's going to be the case. And I, I know there's rumors out there that eventually there is going to be something that comes back at that, that, that uh, we may see her again in another film or a television series or whatever the case may be and kind of grooming the next, uh, you know, group of, of Jedi, but, uh, what a fitting role for her, if that's the case. And it wouldn't shock me if that, you know, ends up being the, the next Jedi temple be, is there right there on the Lars homestead at Tatooine. Yeah, that'd be very interesting. And, and really the last uh, moment within the film is, is, uh, an old woman kind of comes by and asks who she is and she gives her first name and the woman asks, you know, what, what's your last name? And, uh, she gives the name Skywalker. So it really brings the story of, of who she is full circle that she has chosen to be, uh, the person that, you know, that she actually made the decision to be that, that was based on the people that had imprinted themselves on her the most in Luke and Leia, uh, and not the person whose blood, uh, or bloodline she had come from. So I thought that was, uh, again, if you want to talk about defeating Palpatine, not only to defeat him directly, but also to kind of deliberately do away with, uh, with his name and any memory of him. Yeah, you know, um, I, I I won't take credit for this because I saw it somewhere on social media or heard it somewhere out there, but she dies as a Palpatine and is reborn as a Skywalker. And I thought that's very appropriate uh, to what the situation is and uh, the way uh, this film finishes out. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point, And I hadn't really considered that. And certainly the fact that as she gives uh, the Skywalker surname that she's kind of looking out into the desert and sees uh, Luke and Leia there. Uh, kind of looking on as force ghosts, I, you know, you couldn't have have chosen two better people to to be again the the people that imprinted themselves on her the most, um, and whose spirit was basically going to live on through her. Right, and basically, you know, why 
by Ben putting his life force into her. Basically, he's implanted some Skywalker within her. So even more reason why she should definitely call herself a Skywalker. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm sure that as uh, as I get out there, and I've only seen it twice at this point, I, I know I'm going to go see it several more times while it's in the theater. Um, and I'm sure I'll pick up even more. But hopefully that uh, kind of gave some additional insight into some of those scenes in the film. And uh, Tom, I appreciate you joining me for that. You're certainly welcome to stay on as I talk about the the Galaxy's Edge stuff or uh, I sure I want to hear yeah. about it because yeah. I haven't experienced either of those things myself so I'd love to hear about it terrific so yeah getting back to what I said at the beginning of the show uh, there were a couple of experiences that uh, that I got a chance to check out while we were at Star Wars Galaxy's Edge down in Orlando Florida and uh, it's really the two two biggest kind of add-on experiences you can get within Galaxy's Edge. So there's uh, Savi's Workshop, which is essentially uh, within the story of Galaxy's Edge, there's a group of individuals known as the Gatherers, and they work out of Savi's Workshop. Um, but essentially, uh, you're not making a lightsaber, you're, you're constructing junk. Uh, and so they show you some different options of scrap metal that you can put together. This experience is $199 plus tax, so it's not inexpensive, but interesting for me was that, uh, and I'm a little bit of a lightsaber snob. I, I have to say that right off the bat. Um, so I'm trying to temper. How many lightsabers do you have now? Um, enough. No, <laughs> <laughs> I, I only have two myself. My son had one, um, I actually let him do the the build here. So now he thinks he's pretty hot stuff because he has as many lightsabers as dad does. But um, wow. yeah, so when you uh, when you sign up for this, when you show up for your uh, for your build slot, you actually are going to go in there with a group of people. I believe there's 14 spots and each person can bring in one guest. So it makes it a little bit awkward if you're a parent, uh, if you've got a child and both parents want to go in and view, they'll typically only let one of the parents go in. Um, but they have four different classifications of lightsaber. There's peace and justice, power and control, protection and defense, and elemental nature. And really the only difference there is each one has a different set of components that you can craft your lightsaber out of. They're all going to have a core that, that holds a kyber crystal uh, and essentially has the batteries that drive the whole thing. And then around that chassis, um, there's an upper body module, a lower body module, um, a switch that you can use, and then an emitter, which is where the blade comes out, and then uh, a pommel, uh, which is the butt end. So ultimately, uh, you have to select from one of those four uh, options. Each one has two different options for each of those pieces that I mentioned, so you can kind of customize it to whatever you think looks best. Um, you're going to be given an option within the experience to choose a kyber crystal. Um, additional kyber crystals can be purchased from Doc Ondars for additional, uh, I think they're like $14.99 a piece. Um, I may be thinking about the, uh, the personality chips for the droids. But uh, suffice to say, you get one with the lightsaber. It also comes in, in a bag that you can use. And these are actually TSA approved to take on your flights going home. So I know a lot of people who have done this were concerned about, is this something I can take on the flight? Uh, it is. We had no issues bringing this home with us. So that was really good news. Um, it should be noted that the lightsaber hilts that you're constructing are actually made out of metal. So they are pretty hefty. Um, the only knock I had on them personally was uh, some of them kind of had cosmetic, uh, you know, 
features on them or a look to them like they weren't metal, like they were more plastic, but they are absolutely metal uh, hilts. They're very sturdy. They're very heavy. Uh, so not to worry in terms of, you know, the quality of what you're getting for your money. But interestingly enough, when you go into, when you're taken into the workshop to actually begin the construction of, of your uh, lightsaber, there's an entire show component to this. And I won't go into all the detail about specifically, you know, what happens in this show, but I will say it's very much on par with what you would expect from Disney. Um, the cast members that are in there as, as the Batuans that are helping you, the gatherers that actually get these pieces that you're putting together into the lightsaber. Um, there is a, a wonderful story for it. Uh, my son was kind of, surprisingly indifferent when he went in, but he quickly found himself getting into the story and it just really made for an incredible experience. Uh, I certainly would say that the lightsaber that you get when it's all said and done is worth the money that you're paying for it, especially when you consider that there is a show component to it. Um, and I saw, I can't tell you how many of these lightsabers walking around the parks. And that's to say nothing of, of the uh, legacy sabers that are more like the characters that you would know, the Luke, the, the Ben uh, Solo, the Kylo Ren type sabers that you can buy at Doc Ondar's. Uh, these were everywhere. Um, so, and for the period of time that we were there, you couldn't even get a spot booked. So if you are going and you're considering this, make sure you book in advance um, if you are trying to get a walk-in spot for this or for the Droid Depot, I would tell you show up very early in the morning and occasionally they will let uh, some singles walk in to do these experiences. Uh, but they are very popular, especially during the busier times of year to be at Walt Disney World and I'm guessing at Disneyland as well. Uh, and so it is is absolutely worth the money for the experience. Uh, and especially if you have a younger child that is looking to get something that's really going to be kind of a, a keepsake from Galaxy's Edge. This is something that's going to be incredibly durable uh, and something that is going to give them a lot of uh, enjoyment for years to come. And like I said, you can buy other Kyber crystals so you can change your blade color. Uh, and and it's just uh, a great experience to have within Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. Yeah, I've seen uh, no shortage. We were just at Star Wars Galaxy's Edge over the weekend at Disneyland, and I saw no shortage of lightsabers uh, and lightsaber holders uh, out there as well. So uh, they're selling a lot of those. And um, from what I understand, and uh, you're confirmed it there, Rob, because I was wondering what your feelings on it. Going into it, I had heard, like, look, you know, you, you're 200 bucks for a lightsaber. It's like, okay, do I need to pay 200 bucks to get a lightsaber? Really? You know, I could get one you know, that's pretty good more inexpensively online through different uh, other places. And, uh, but I've heard the show is amazing and it makes it the value of your saber while it's still a quality saber, it does end up being of value to you just because of the, the show portion of the entire thing. Yeah. The, the experience other, the you other, have around building it. Sorry. The other thing to note is that when you select the type of lightsaber that you're going to build from those four categories that I gave, you are given a pin that you basically pin on your shirt and that indicates what type of lightsaber you've selected. So it, it is a, an indicator for the, the cast members inside the gatherers inside when they come to bring you your tray of lightsaber components to construct your lightsaber, what to bring you. Uh, but it also has got, you know, a nice little effect. I saw a lot of people kind of pinning them onto the, uh, the carriers for their lightsabers and 
pin trading and, and pin collecting at Walt Disney World and Disneyland are very popular activities. So if you've got a child that wants a lightsaber and is also into the pin collecting, I know a lot of the kids are collecting uh, the Star Wars pins, that this is kind of one of those unique pins that you can't get any other way and is going to be another little special item. And usually those pins at, at any of the Disney parks are going to run you anywhere between 10 and $15. So kind of factor that into the value you're getting for the cost as well. Yeah, for specialty pins, limited edition pins, I mean, you get up to around 25 bucks uh, depending on uh, what they are. So, uh, you know, something special like that is extra added value for sure. Yeah. And so the other experience that we had was going into Mobu's uh, Droid Depot and building a custom droid. They do have some uh, droids kind of boxed up on the shelves that you can get, including a, a DJ Rex droid, which is the former Star, Tour, Star Tours uh, Captain Rex uh, that is now kind of uh, spinning tunes over in the cantina. But for the custom droid building experience, you're essentially uh, going to pay $90 or sorry, $99.99 uh, plus tax. So it came out to a little over $106. Um, and for that price, you get to build either an R2 series droid or a BB series droid. Uh, and we'll get into that in just a moment. It also comes with a cardboard droid carrier. So you're going to have a way to carry the droid around. Now, the day that we did it, it was raining outside and uh, they were running a special for uh, the upgraded price of, I think, an additional $57. You got this really nice uh, droid carrying backpack that has a flap that can fold down because one of the cool things about these droids is that they will interact with... Uh, wherever you're at in Galaxy's Edge, especially if you do the personality chip. So if you pick a personality chip where your droid is going to be resistance affiliated, uh, it's going to be reacting in a certain way when you're in areas of Galaxy's Edge that are first order controlled uh, or maybe the more neutral areas and then differently within the resistance held areas. Uh, and likewise, if you get one that's a personality chip that's more aligned with the First Order or with uh, kind of the neutral smugglers faction. So uh, it also changes kind of the pitch and tone of some of the sounds they make. Um, but it was really funny because um, because we got this upgraded package with the personality chip as we were riding Rise of the Resistance and we were on board that First Order Star Destroyer, uh, my son had made uh, an Imperial version of a BB droid. Uh, very similar to the one that you saw in The Last Jedi with kind of that flat head and the all-black body. And it was going nuts when we were on the First Order Star Destroyer. And we actually had people around us in line who were commenting about how funny the droid was because he was just, you know, rattling off all kinds of stuff as we were uh, walking through the queue there. So very fun to to kind of see how other people react to the droids in the way that they're reacting to their environment. Yeah, again, uh, just like the lightsabers, I've seen so many droids that have been built out there, and I've seen the, the cardboard boxes. I've also seen the backpacks, and I'm just glad I own Disney stock because uh, <laughs> it's, it's really nice to see all these things sell, but it also seems like everybody's enjoying taking part in these things and really enjoying the products that come out of them. Yeah, and the other cool thing about the droids is that uh, at least within uh, Walt Disney World, they have an area kind of across from the droid depot that's open. And I was noticing that there were a lot of kids that were kind of gathering there and playing with their droids in that area. Uh, and they seem to be having a lot of fun with that. So that was pretty cool. Um, like I said, the package for the backpack and the personality chip, I think was $57. The thing to note is you don't get an annual pass holder discount for the droid building itself or the lightsaber experience at Savi's. But if you're buying accessories, blades, uh, kyber crystals, um, 
personality chips for the droids, the backpack, all those things are uh, items that you can use your annual pass holder discount on. So we did get a discount on that component. Um, as Tom said, I saw uh, the probably the funniest thing I saw was I saw a family with kind of one of those double strollers, but they had their kids out walking uh, because the stroller had five box droids like <laughs> piled up on it. So like wow. you said, I mean, clearly uh, they're very popular. I thought the quality of the droid was really good. Um, they're all they all run on uh, regular batteries, so it's not something that is likely to kind of deteriorate over time where it's a rechargeable battery that's going to degrade. Uh, and, and my son had a lot of fun playing with it. And it's great uh, for like a conversation piece as well. He's got a lot of Star Wars decorations in his room. So between that and the lightsaber, uh, they definitely fit well into the decor of the room. And uh, both of them, I was very impressed with uh, both the process of building. The, the kind of cool thing about the Droid Depot is that there's a conveyor belt uh, that once you're checked in, they give you a, a bin. You tell them whether you want to build a BB droid or an R2 droid. And on the bottom of the bin, it tells whoever is going to be building the droid what components they need to pull off the uh, off the assembly line that's kind of coming by. And there's all manner of different colorings and um, some different modifications. So they had like the classic BB head, they had the flatter one, they had another one that had kind of a, a communications array on it. So you can really customize them to your heart's content based on the options that they have. And you can even mismatch if you want the punky Brewster droid uh, that's every part of it is is a different pattern or color you can go that route seen as those. well seen a couple of those yeah, yeah yeah i've seen a couple of people who who really wanted to express themselves so you know and, and it's a situation where it's it's another one of those experiences uh not only do you have to get the components but then you have to go and you build them uh and in some cases they have uh items that have to be screwed on. So I saw a lot of the kids that were building them really having a lot of fun because there's these uh, kind of multi-tools that are hanging down uh, that they can then take and, and put the droid together themselves. And then it gets put in a in a bin uh, with the controller and they activate it. So there's an entire kind of show sequence as your droid is being programmed to you specifically uh, that a lot of people were, were having a lot of fun with as well. So uh, again, if you want to walk into these things and they say they're busy, try to get there early in the morning. You have a better than average chance that they can fit you in. Uh, but certainly, I believe in most of the cases, you can you can book these uh, experiences up to six months in advance. And certainly booking in advance is going to give you a guaranteed time slot and ensure that you know you get to have the experience you want when you go into Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. Yeah, 60 days at Disneyland if, you, uh, if you're looking to book them ahead of time, make a reservation at Savi's or at the Troy Depot or at Oga's Cantina for that matter, uh, 60 days ahead of time. But yeah, I believe it's farther out over at the Walt Disney World Resort. Yeah. Perfect. I appreciate the information from the Disneyland perspective as well. So uh, that's really all I got for this week. I do want to add one other thing I'm going to be putting out on social media uh, and mentioning here, obviously, that we're going to be doing a giveaway for the month of January in honor of the opening of Rise of Resistance. Uh, it already opened in back in December at the Walt Disney World Resort, but it is going live uh, later this week, I believe, at... Um, 
Yeah, at Disneyland Resort. So uh, I do have a really cool uh, Star Wars Rise of the Resistance travel mug that we picked up while we were down at Galaxy's Edge. And I'm going to put out the details on social media. So go out there and check it out. Uh, it's going to be super easy to enter. You're just going to have to retweet uh, or relink the uh, the post, whether wherever you found it. It's going to be on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And uh, give me a comment, letting me know you want to be in the drawing. And I will draw that at the end of the month. And we will get that out to someone right at the beginning of February. So looking forward to uh, getting a winner on that and hopefully you enjoy the the giveaway. Very cool. Uh, I saw those mugs there. They look awesome and you will want it. So uh, yeah, get in there and uh, enter away. Awesome. So Tom, thank you so much for uh, coming on and joining me. I know I've taken up a huge chunk of your evening. I never go this long, but it was a ton to cover. So I uh, want you to give everyone where they can find you in the Hyperion Adventures podcast and the series that we did on uh, the Star Wars Remembered. Sure. Thanks, Robin. I, I don't mind taking out the time to uh, talk about a movie that I think we both really enjoyed. And, you know, despite what the critics thought about it and what some of the fan base think about it, uh, we really liked the, the Rise of Skywalker. And if you want to hear my podcast that I do with my wife, we are the Hyperion Adventures podcast. We talk about everything Disney, whether it be going to the parks, whether it be uh, the movies. We do talk Star Wars a lot. We talk Marvel. We talk about Disney Cruise Line. And uh, you can find us most everywhere you get podcasts. Or the very best place to find us is on our own website, HyperionAdventuresPodcast.com. And we're also very active on social media. We have a lot of fun with all our followers out there. And you can find us there on Twitter at Hyperion Podcast, Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest at Hyperion Adventures Podcast. Yeah, and I will definitely tell everyone if you uh, do enjoy Hyperion Adventures or certainly if you enjoy us here at the JTA Podcast, please uh, tell a friend, tell a family member, tell people you know that have similar interests to you uh, to come check out the podcast. Word of mouth is by far the best way to grow these shows. Uh, and certainly we'd be doing this anyway, but uh, the more people that you know we can bring on board uh, to drive discussions and, and enjoy some of the future topics, it just makes it all the more worthwhile to do these shows. So uh, certainly if you want to let people know where to find us, you can find us most easily at jtapodcast.com. Uh, you can shoot us an email at jtapodcast at gmail.com and you can find us on social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or Pinterest at JTA Podcast. So uh, with that being said, we're going to go ahead and wrap the show for this week. Thank you guys so much for staying on board. I know this podcast was almost as long as the film itself, uh, but we had a lot to cover, a lot of thoughts after having watched it a couple times and i'm sure there's much more discussion to come uh, and we've got some great topics coming to you this month and the beginning and next and some uh, some fun guests that we're going to be having on the podcast as well so thank you guys have a great week and may the force be with you mm -hmm.